This is Jocko Podcast number 375 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. When Aziz and I reached the hill's peak, kids playing on the ladders and diving platforms scattered. As we neared the pool, the only sound other than our footsteps came from the gusting wind. Amid the eerie quiet, I noticed a cable suspended from one of the middle diving platforms about seven and a half meters above the pool. The cable, made of steel, barely swayed in the wind. It ended in a slipknot noose. I've witnessed many public executions here, Aziz said. Some were hanged, some were thrown off the towers like garbage and died on the concrete floor, and not always immediately. After the Soviets left Afghanistan following nine years of war, the difficulty of pumping water up to the top of the hill to fill the pool wasn't worth the effort for a nation with little interest in training athletes for international competition. When the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan, they found a use for the empty pool. Aziz and I descended the ladder into the pool's deep end. The width spanned 25 meters. The wall was riddled with bullet holes the size of 762 bullets. They were head high of a person on their knees. And there had to be thousands of holes. I crossed to the shallow end, stepping around puddles left by the latest rain and observed the same pattern of bullet holes in that wall. They were the height of the head of a kneeling child. I pulled my Leatherman tool from my pants pocket. With the pointed pliers, I dug into a few of the holes. I removed two bullet jacket remains and looked down at them in my hand. Two symbols of the Taliban's hatred of innocent people, of unimaginable evil. I slid the jacket remains into my pocket. I didn't want to forget the anger I felt standing next to those bullet holes. Aziz knew this place would show me why his family was so caught up in our presidential election. My home country was the land of the free. Theirs was now becoming one. They needed us to help bring that freedom to completion for them and for future generations of Afghans. I returned to that pool, the killing pool, I came to call it, numerous times during my deployments. I would sit in the breeze and the quiet and the eeriness and stare at that steel cable and the bullet holes. I imagined the faces of innocent people, of the women and kids especially, killed there only because they tasted freedom and discovered a joy so rewarding that they didn't want to go back to their old lives of oppression. They couldn't go back, no matter the cost. And that right there is an excerpt from the opening of a book. The book is called Saving Aziz. And it's written by Chad Robichaud. And Chad is a former Force Recon Marine who also served as a military contractor. And in those roles, he deployed to Afghanistan eight times. He was eventually diagnosed with PTSD which ended his deployments overseas until years later during the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
His former interpreter, Aziz, who you just heard about, his friend, his brother in arms needed to be saved from the Taliban. And when that happened, Chad had to go again into an unstable environment to do the right thing, to save his friend and save many others. And it's an honor to have Chad with us here tonight to share his story. Chad, thanks for coming down, man. Man, thanks so much for having me on. I listened to you to read that. I was like felt chills uh i mean I, I wrote it but just hearing you read it just like I, i'm picturing myself like with the leatherman tool digging in that wall yeah i remember it. i know we've been we've been trying to do this podcast for a long time um you know you're a jujitsu guy i'm a jujitsu guy i i know actually you run an organization called the mighty oaks and there's been a few times i'm friends with matt mm-hmm. there's been a couple times where i've had to utilize you guys i've called you guys when i got people would reach out to me that were having serious issues and i would i've reached out to matt a few times to get support so appreciate that and we'll get into that later yeah but uh i'm glad i finally got you down here man i'm glad to finally be here it's we were talking earlier it's always you know you wait till the right time and i feel like right now is the right time anyway so I'm, i'm super happy to be here today right on man yeah um let's let's before we jump into the book Let's start at the beginning. Let's just how you how you became how you became Chad Robichaux. Am I saying that right? Robichaux. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you got cool, it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Good guess. Gotta I come guess. All, Gotta come all the way to San Diego to get somebody to say Robichaux right. <laughs> <laughs> so, where were you born? I was born in Southern Louisiana. Uh, good Robichaux. So French there's a Robichaux name, yeah, name yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And when I say Southern Louisiana, I mean like mud between your toes, swamps, <laughs> bayous. Uh, if you've seen swamp people, that's my family. Uh, so yeah. That's, and is that where you grew up too? That's where I grew up. I grew up uh, in a town called Raceland, Louisiana. Really small town. Uh, and runs on, the whole town's built in this one bayou called Bayou Lafouche, which runs down to the, to the, to the, to the Gulf. Um, and what are people doing there for a living? Mostly fishing, uh, farming, farming and fishing, uh, sh- shrimping. So uh, my grandfather on one side baled hay uh, and just mowed, mowed pastures and baled hay. My grandfather on the other side was a commercial cat fisherman since he was uh, a boy. And so all of my family's first jobs were skinning catfish uh, in a catfish market. My first job was skinning catfish. I remember being, you know, going out and trying to, me and my cousins uh, doubling up on a, on a bale of, bale, uh, a 50 pound ba- bale of hay. Um, on one side of the family and, and then the other side was, uh, was skinning catfish. So, so, so uh, what did your mom and dad do for a living? So my, my dad, uh, so my, my mom was a florist and my dad was, uh, he was, he was a Marine and, but he ended up being in working in the oil field. Mm-hmm. So my, uh, my family actually has 84 years of service. And right now, um, I guess there's a book out that I hadn't tracked down yet of Fred Robichaux, who is my uh, uncle, my, my grandfather's brother, who served in World War II as an infantryman in the Army, and, uh, and there's this book out that I'm trying to track down, so if anybody knows it, let, let me know. But, um, but yeah, so my grand, so World War II, Korea, my father was the first Marine in our family, served as infantryman in Vietnam, and then, uh, and then myself and, and both my sons are Marines, so, so long history of military Dang. in our family. So when you were growing up, was your dad around when you were growing up? Yeah, uh, well, they got divorced when I was seven, um, and uh, and then he was in and out of my life. I lived back and forth with my mom and my dad and my grandparents, so I lived a pretty dysfunctional kind of childhood, bouncing back and forth. My uh, my father never got help after Vietnam. In fact, my, my father uh, joined the Marine Corps. Um, if, if people look at the Vietnam draft, like you, the Marine Corps didn't draft people, you had to volunteer for the Marine Corps. So. 
my father was driving to high school uh, and goofing off with his best friend in the passenger seat and hit the back of a garbage truck on the way to school, kills his best friend, and then uh, goes to the Marine Corps recruiting office and joins the Marine Corps to go to Vietnam. And so that's how my dad went in the Marine Corps, probably already a pretty broken person, had those experiences in Vietnam, never got help. And uh, so a lot of alcohol, women, a lot of physical violence. Me and my, my brother um, that were the kind of subjects of that physical abuse. I remember him beating my mom, watching him beat my stepmom eventually, but always it was always targeted on me and my brother. He was a year older than me. And uh, so part of joining the military was because it's kind of weird this paradox of wanting to follow my dad's footsteps but also wanting to use that as a way to escape from the childhood that i lived in and uh i was grew up in martial arts so um lifelong athlete started when i was five years old uh, in judo and traditional jiu-jitsu so my brother and i were like really close through that we bonded through that and i remember we were about 13 and 14 years old and we were always playing in the swamps and bayous and playing military and we were like we could join the military one day and escape, like get a fresh start, escape this lifestyle. And we were watching them. Um, you probably remember this. This, uh, this was like, uh, so I would have been, this would have been like 19, like uh, eight, late 80, 80s. There was this Navy SEAL video of these guys that down in the Strand. Mm-hmm. And they were like, they like raided the Strand. Oh remember yeah, that? the recruiting yeah. video. It's yes. a recruiting <laughs> video called Be Someone Special. Yeah, that's it, and yeah. It, it, uh, have you seen it in the last 20 years? No, but I bet it looks really yeah. cheesy now. <laughs> it's so, it's so absolutely terrible but It, it captured me. Well, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we've seen that video and we were like, and then I remember there was this picture uh, of this Navy SEAL. He's coming out of the water. He's got a boonie yeah. hat on, yeah. seaweed hanging off him, twin 80s on his back and M16. And I'm like, I want to do that, but I don't want to join the Navy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was the one thing was, I think it was my dad. The one thing, my dad was always this like angry, dysfunctional human being, but the one thing that always made him proud and happy was the fact that he's a United States Marine. And I was like, if that can make that guy happy, I want a piece of that. And and uh, so I started, there was these books like uh, Men With Green Faces. Mm-hmm. I started reading these Vietnam books and then I had found these uh, books from uh, Third Recon and Third Force Recon in Vietnam and I was reading those books and just became infatuated becoming a recon Marine. So 13, my brother's 14, we start training. And about a year into that, uh, my brother was shot and killed. And uh, it was devastating. How was he shot and killed? He was, uh, he had, we, so we had a broken family. So he had a, another brother that was 11 from the other side of the family. They got in an argument. My brother had a fire poker and was trying to knock a gun out of his hand. He had a, the other kid had a, he's 11 years old, had a 20 gauge pointed at him. And, uh, and when he, the, either intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know, uh, but point blank range with 20 gauge shotgun to the chest and he died instantly. Um, so he was on the phone. So someone heard oh, heard it all on the phone. He was holding the phone and had a fire poker. And, uh, and, and this so, is when you're 13 years old. Oh, it was 14 when this happened. Okay. Yeah. So we were, you know, we when we were all, you know, that 13 to 14 years old. That's when we started running and we were swimming, uh, watching those videos. And uh, and we, uh, you know, for me that was like the closest person in my life at that time. So I went into a real deep isolation. My father, my my stepmother who was the biological mother of my brother couldn't handle the loss of her son she went moved back with her parents my father moved to africa in an oil field job he didn't want to deal with her and uh, i had a 20 year old sister and so the two of us by the time i was right, right about 15 years old i found myself living alone uh with my sister trying to work i was working on roofing uh i was uh, doing putting shingles on houses and, uh, and i was trying to go to high school at the same time and uh, when I was 17 years old, I, I knew I probably wasn't gonna graduate high school. And I went to a Marine Corps recruiter named 
Staff Sergeant Ronald Brown. I still remember his name almost 30 years later. I mean, most people remember their recruiter's name because they hate them. Uh, I, I, I'm just thankful to this dude. I mean, he, he, I told him my situation. I was just remember being real, real transparent with him about what my life was like and how I wanted to go to the Marine Corps. And he helped me get in the Marine Corps without even a high school diploma. I wasn't going to graduate. What year high school, was this? 1993. And how old are you? I'm 17 at the time. Did you, so you said you had, you've been doing judo and traditional judo. Did you wrestle too? You know, I, I tried to wrestle for two years. We tried to start a club at, at my high school, but there was not enough, mm-hmm. never enough people in the team. And so I wrestled, but I never competitively wrestled because we didn't have enough people for a team. Uh, and it was mostly people from our judo club that was trying to put a wrestling team together at a high school. We just couldn't get Southern Louisiana, couldn't get enough people together. But this, um, okay, I, I just wanted to catch that little uh, detail because I know, you know, like I said, you're a jiu-jitsu guy, I'm a jiu-jitsu guy, you end up fighting all this stuff. So I just wanted to catch yep. where that where that started so you go to the marine corps recruiter yep god bless the marine corps and for every you know like you said man for all these guys that get you know screwed over by the recruiter occasionally that recruiter is a lifesaver for somebody yeah. and the and the marine corps is a lifesaver for you who who knows where my life would be right now i mean uh, i mean I wasn't heading the right good trajectory. I wasn't like doing drugs or anything like that. I was still like very disciplined in training in martial arts. I was I was running like 50, 60 miles a week a week. So I was running a lot and I'd go swim. I was, I was swimming. So I was still I was doing the right things, but like academically in school, I was like failing. Uh, I was you know I was I was not going to graduate high school. So this guy put me on a um, infantry contract. There wasn't recon contracts back then, and uh, and I made him promise that I get my GED when I finished uh, infantry school and. I went through boot camp, went through infantry school. Uh, How was it? So you show up to boot camp. Yeah. You're 17 years old. When, are you 17 when you go to boot camp? 17 when I go to boot camp. That's freaking My 18th birthday was in, it was right here, right here down <laughs> across the street, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, and is it a shock to your system or are you just totally pumped for it? I was totally pumped for it. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, it was something I had thought about, obviously, yeah. for a long time. And, uh, and I remember just being like, it's, it's weird how you can remember certain things, but I remember like standing, like literally standing on those yellow footprints, thinking that like everything that's behind me, like this is a chance for me to to do something. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I was at that, I had my, my childhood was so, my, my stepfather, like lots of physical abuse in my life. I felt free. Mm-hmm. I felt like a, a sense of freedom that I wasn't held back by like, my, my stepfather, my dad, like it was just like, this is for me, I could do what I want to with this. And and I, I don't know how at the young, naive age of 17 years old, I made a decision to embrace it. And uh, and I just put everything I could, you know, graduated squad leader at boot camp, uh, got honor grad out of infantry school. I get to 29 Palms, California, and I'm like, I made this guy a promise. The Marine Corps is not, I have no contractual obligation to get my GED, but I'm like, I made this guy a promise. I went to Copper Mountain College in 29 Palms, got my GED. All these years later, I have MBA, and I always joke when I'm speaking. I'm like, I can't spell MBA, but I got one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, the Marine Corps really gave and I go speak at Marine Corps boot camp for eight years now. I go every quarter right here in San Diego, and now I'm going to Parish Island. I've spoke to, I spoke to about a half a million troops over the last 12 years, but all, you know, a lot of them at Marine Corps boot camp. And, and I, I tell them about the experience. Like when you stand on these yellow footprints at Marine Corps boot camp or wherever, you know, young service members and find themselves and they raise their hand and make that commitment, it's, it doesn't matter like what color you are, if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, it doesn't matter if your dad was rich or poor or you lived in a projects or a trailer park, none of that matters. Like it's on you to change the trajectory of your life for better or for worse. And you have that opportunity when you go there and uh, man, none of your past matters anymore. And and uh, I like really had recognized that. I had that. I had that drive to want to 
take advantage of the opportunity and also had this like like lingering like commitment that me and my brother were going to be recon marines and uh and so i went while i was in infantry school i tried out for recon i don't know why they let us try out because they let us try out and then the guys who passed it were like yeah we're not taking uh, anybody that's not ncos and they sent us away and uh so they, it was just maybe uh and then i went back again passed the second time same thing happened and uh i went then i went to uh and Twin and Palms went to what's called Regimental State Platoon, which is a surveillance target acquisition platoon. It's a sniper platoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was right after I got to Twin and Palms. And then I tried out a third time and got picked up. And so my first year in the Marine Corps, I got a chance to go to become a recon Marine. So that was your first year in the Marine Corps? First year in the Marine Corps, which back then it was you know really hard to do. You didn't have a contract. You usually had to be around a while. And so I got, yeah, I got picked up. And well, uh, how come you got picked up? Were you like physically just kicking ass? I, I was, I was in really good shape. I mean, I was my, like, I'm super, I'm small now, but I was like 120 pounds. I was running like, I was running like 16 minute, three miles. I was, you know, I was really good in the water. I was, you know, I grew up in the bayous and water. I never competitively swam, but I was just really comfortable in the water. And yeah, uh, web feet, man. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up in the bayous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was just, I just wanted it so bad. And, uh, and so, Myself and a, and a guy who went to boot camp with named uh, Mark Terrell, who's actually still in Marine Corps. He's a gunner now, which is not a gunny, a gunner, mm -hmm. uh, which is like a combat advisor. He's, you know, recon Marsoc guy. And he's, uh, but th we went through it together. Uh, me, him, and a guy named Foster Harrington, who's, uh, Foster was killed on our on our first deployment. But uh, yeah, so uh, we all went through that together. And th they were young guys too. So this was, what year is this? 1994. So I went in in 93, 94. And then the recon school, is that the one that's down in Coronado? Yeah, well, it, that, they're still part running in Coronado, Coronado, but part of it's in Coronado. That not, it used to be, when I went, it, it was EWTG pack, oh, and, yeah. uh, and I went right across from Bud's, and, but now it's uh, headquartered in Camp Pendleton under the School of Infantry, but you still do amphib package down in Coronado. And how long is the, how long is the recon school? Well, it's a, it's a whole pipeline, it's a year long. Mm -hmm. uh, so they go, they go to what's called, they'll go to four weeks of infantry school, and then they go to uh, they go to what's called uh, MART, Marines Awaiting Recon Training, and it's just like a holding platoon that they just weed people out through physical fitness. Uh, and then they have then they do BRPC, which is Basic Recon Prep Course, which is three weeks. And then they do a Basic Recon Course, which is 10 weeks. And, and then, what are you learning in the Basic Recon Course? Uh, Shooting, shooting, uh, movements, communica communication, amphib, uh, all the amphib stuff. It's basically like a, you doing all the core functional like things of recon marines, all the different uh, reconnaissance missions, route reps, fording reps, um, helo helo zones, surf reps, confirmatory beach reports, Get some. all those kind of those kind of <laughs> with, with no equipment, like just the you know the the yeah. five fifty core getting tangled up in the surf zone. And yeah. So all that stuff, and then a lot of fitness. Uh, you could when you walk when these guys kids leave recon school, they could communicate as good as any communicator, probably better because they get more equipment. Uh, they should be able to do all their uh, basic like a uh, you know call fire stuff and nine lines, uh, and then they they're patrolling a small unit patrolling, and they're going to rotate through kind of like a ranger school where they'll go through like being a point man to all the way to being a team leader. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get fragged uh, during that patrolling phase, and now you're the team leader, and they'll do ten day patrolling phase. Land navigation is extremely difficult both water and uh and land where uh, do you do the land nav do you do uh, it in, camp, in camp Pelon. yeah so it's 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 extremely difficult because it doesn't allow you to dead reckon you have to pick up mm -hmm. a map and compass terrain associate and and run with gear uh or you're not going to make the camp times Pendleton's a national treasure it is it really is <laughs> yeah. that place is freaking awesome it's, it's awesome place i wish it was train. even bigger 
<laughs> but um, so when you graduate BRC, you go to then you go you graduate on Friday, and then on Monday you're in pre scuba. You do two weeks of pre scuba, and then you go to down to Florida for ten weeks or nine weeks of combat dive. So Who teaches doing, that? Is it Marine Corps? Marine or is that Corps. the Navy course? It's the Marine Corps one. So you do enclosed and open circuit. Oh, okay. um, so yeah, the, the Navy course is the the open circuit course. Back yeah. in my day, I did Navy open circuit, then I did a LAR five transition course. But now they do the whole combat dive course, which sort of learning the, you know, insertion, uh, really more the insertion, uh, being able to navigate uh, on a LAR five. That's basically <laughs> what they're doing. And then, uh, and then uh, you do SEER school, then free fall school, and then you go to unit. So when the guys go to unit now, they're 19, 20 years old, and they're schooled out. They're ready mm -hmm. to deploy. Um, and that is that what you did too? You went through all those schools? I did, but I didn't do them all consecutive in a pipeline like Got that. It. So I went, I went through, and then. You know, you wait around. Wait you around, get, then you, you go to dive school. school. Then yeah, you get jump school. Yeah, cool. probably cool. like kind of your in your day. Yeah. Well, no, you guys come out diving. But. We would come out dive, but we didn't go to jump school until after, and we only went to static line down in Fort Benning with the U.S. Army. Yeah. <laughs> and then when we got done with that, eventually, I didn't get I didn't get free fall until after my first platoon, and now guys get it. They just get it in the pipeline yep. before they even get their get their bird. They get the free fall school. Yeah, same thing with me. In in the meantime, what's your per didn't you get married when you were young as well? Oh yeah, we me and Kathy met when I was right before recon school. So we met seventeen and eighteen. <laughs> our, our our first dates was like the on Coronado Beach, like like her coming coming down to see me on the like because you don't get any days off there, and you, you get you get like. We got like I think two weekends off, and mm -hmm. then you got to write up. You got an eighty-page patrol to write on those. So like, so she came down to see me on those weekends, and I remember we actually fell asleep together on the beach out there, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, that's uh, you know, that was that was how we started dating, and then uh, a year after we started dating, we we got married. So when she was eighteen and you're nineteen, yeah, that's, that's when right. y'all got married. That's when we got married, yeah. And so she's been through. All, all of it. <laughs> all of She's it. been way worse than recon school. <laughs> yeah, she's been sure. all of it. Yeah, no, that's uh, and that's awesome that you guys are still together. Um, so, so now you're you're doing this, and then what's what are you are you going on deployment? What are your deployments like? No, it's ninety three. I mean, uh, okay. I went in ninety three to, and so this is like you know, finished this training in ninety four. There's no deployments. So actually, did you go on an ARG deployment or something? No, we do. We, we're my my unit was doing uh, was mainly doing the uh, JTF six missions down on a, yeah. down on the across border here. You know, right, right across the border from where we're at in in, in Mexico, we mm -hmm. were doing a JTF six counter narcotics missions. Uh, that's primarily what my unit was doing when I was on active duty. And then after that first four years, I'm like, man, we're not doing anything right now. Uh, I want to go be an officer. So I went to the reserves. I went to Third Force Recon in the reserves. So you do your first hitch. Mm -hmm. uh, you get done with all this schooling. Were they pissed when you said you were going to go reserves, or were they downsizing at this time? Th th yeah, I don't think they, they really cared. It didn't seem like they really cared. Yeah, mm -hmm. they offered me a school and uh, and an I and I billet at in Reno, which was an instruct inspector instructor mm -hmm. billet at Fourth fourth force recon it was not really that wasn't really pushing guys to, to stay in so you make a decision you're gonna get out or go to the reserves yep go to school become an and then you can come back in as an officer yep that was my that was my plan and that way you'll be able to financially take care yeah. of your family did you have a kid yet yeah i had hunter hunter was born my oldest he was born you're in just knocking it out bro you're <laughs> yeah. just getting yeah. it done i'm from louisiana like we started early in louisiana <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. they thought you were old when you had a kid at 19 they're yeah. like what's wrong with you what are you waiting for oh yeah that, that was the pressure from I remember my mom saying like, me getting married like okay she's pregnant like <laughs> like yeah so when you get out what are you going to do now so now you're out you got a kid you're in the reserves and this is when you be, you become a uh, a police officer, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was 
I was trying to find work, like uh, to go to, through college. I mean, uh, and it, it, this this may sound stupid. It, it, it was I, I didn't sign up for the uh, the GI Bill. You have to sign up for oh, it. Oh, that's right. So yeah. I'm, I'm in I'm in boot camp. You said no. I'm in boot camp. <laughs> I'm the one idiot that said no, right? And I'm like, I didn't even graduate high school. Like a hundred bucks a month was like that's a tenth of your paycheck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no. what happens is the GI Bill. That you pay well, f- probably the same as when when you went through and I went through. It's different now, I think, but it was a hundred. You pay a hundred bucks a month for a year. Yep. And then after that year, when you get out, whenever that is, they give you something like forty grand for school <laughs> if you're in college. <laughs> and Chad looked at that and says, "No deal, bro. I want my hundred bucks." <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. Yeah, I'm the I'm the, I'm the idiot that did it. Dang. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, cool. you couldn't get it back. I tried. Yeah, the other thing Everything. is, even if you don't use it, you can give it to your kids. Yep. So who, you were a stubborn bastard for you to be like, no, I'm not doing it. I actually had a drill instructor tell me, it, like, 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 had talked, told me and like two other, two or three other guys not to do it. Damn. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why, I can't remember why, but I didn't. And uh, <laughs> and, I, and I, now I'm like, that is the stupidest <laughs> decision, especially for me, because I ended up getting get MBA, which was expensive. And, yeah. Okay, so you get out, now you don't have, you gotta go to college, but you also need a job, you got yeah. a kid, yeah. you got a wife. So how hard is it to become a, a cop? Is it, is it a, because right now, there's recruiting for cops. That yeah. it's, it's a lot easier to become a cop than it used to be, because the <laughs> cops are having a hard time recruiting people to be cops, because there's so much negative press. Uh, what was it like when you tried to become a cop? It was pretty easy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm going back to, you know, backwoods, Louisiana, and and uh, I come out of military, so you know, I'm coming off of active duty, special operations, so like not a lot of competition in the, in the recruiting pool. And, and I was, I mean, I was, I thought I was gonna be able to pull it off doing this. I was teaching swimming lessons and water survival for the oil field at YMCA, so him you know, using them as some of the skills I have to. Teaching little kids swimming lessons, and uh, which my kids were the, were the best. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, there was like this water survival. Everybody goes oil, in the oil over. You know, they have the underwater egress for like when you helicopter rollovers and stuff like that. So I got a I got a position at the YMCA to teach that for the guys traveling in the oil field. But I just wasn't making enough money, so I was like, man, I got to do something else. So I went to the jail, and I was working at the jail, and uh, and and the corrections facility like four days a week, four nights a week. Trying to do all this, and then uh, and then they offered me a position to go to the police academy. And, How long uh, was the police academy? Like three months. Something that wasn't long. How was it? Yeah, it, was, it was pretty. I mean, I was in such good shape at the time. It was pretty easy. But I actually, I, remember, I do remember studying a lot though. And they had to take what's called the post, uh, which is the state exam. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I remember, I remember studying a lot. I remember Kathy like helping me study. She was already like tuned to that because you know all the military schools and <laughs> doing flashcards with me. She's helping her rock husband <laughs> get through this <laughs> yeah. stuff for sure. <laughs> yeah. When uh, is this? Are you back in your hometown where you grew up when you're yeah, doing this? Yeah, I went back, went back to my hometown, and uh, so I graduated the police academy and uh, in this department, um, which is called St. Charles Parish, which is where the New Orleans Airport is. Mm-hmm. So it's like New Orleans is like this kind of mesh of of uh, you got, um, you have Jefferson Jefferson Parish, and they don't have counties that have parishes, mm-hmm. so they have Jefferson Parish, St. Charles Parish, Orleans Parish, just like kind of New Orleans area. And so they, I graduated like I got the like physical fitness and the high shooter award at the academy. And, and, uh, so I had, so the sheriff there offered me a job to come. I was looked really young still. And, uh, so they offered me a job to come to St. Charles parish and work undercover in the high school there. Damn. So I'm like jumps fresh, <laughs> fresh out of the, fresh out of the Marine Corps and, and go back to high school. <laughs> and, uh, 
And uh, you so know, my, you did it. I did it. Yeah. And so what did you do? What did you roll in there? You're carrying a freaking book bag, <laughs> <and> a <laughs> yeah. algebra yeah. book. I remember walking through the hall and a, and and a, a teacher like put his hand out and I'm um, like and I had gum in my mouth and I'm like. <laughs> You know, like last year I was doing counter drug missions in Mexico <laughs> as a force as a force recon, a recon team leader. And now I'm having to spit my gum out for this teacher. That's, you know, but I, I was, I went, the whole plan was for me to go to school for like two weeks uh-huh. and then leave the school and have those relationships. And, uh, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't, my job wasn't to go bust kids. It was to this adults that were selling to kids. Mm-hmm. And so getting that network and, and I did that for like four months. And we, at the end of it, we had like like uh, over 40 like a uh, like felony warrants that we were able to pull off <laughs> so it was pretty pretty uh yeah it was pretty uh cool op- cool opportunity to do so that so was that age. What, what, did you was that like an undercover gig do you have a fake name and all that stuff yeah i did i had a, I had a fake name and a fake driver's license in louisiana that you get you know through the governor's office and, and how old were you supposed to be uh i was uh, high school age i can't remember exactly but uh like like 17, 17 yeah yeah yeah, seventeen, and uh, I wish I would have They had it, so they had another kid on our task force that played in a in a in a. a they went to a high school called uh, Bell Chase High School, and he played for the. And he was like he played in college baseball, and then he went played uh, baseball at the high school. Bro, and like he was like he had this story like my parents died, and and so the team came together and bought him a glove, and <laughs> he's like. <laughs> He's like he ripping deep. leather off of so balls. What do, you, what do you do like on a? I was hoping there was a wrestling team. Like I could have like been smashing kids <laughs> yeah. in their face. <laughs> State champ. So like on a Friday night when the kids are having a party, that's where like, we'd be. Yeah. You'd go. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what book did I write it in. I think I wrote it in, in my book, An Unfair Advantage. We uh, we we were at this party, and uh, I think I passed the uh, the period where I get in trouble for this. <laughs> But but we had this party and, and these guys it was these you know all these high school girls were like I'm like new the new guy right mm-hmm. so these high school girls so it wasn't anything to do with drugs or anything like that these guys wanted to beat me up because their girlfriends were like after me right right so I'm at this high school party and I got these guys wanting to beat me up they were they were not kids they were adults and uh, and so <laughs> I, I'm trying to leave and this guy takes a swing at me and and I pushed the car door and he hits this girl. Oh, and uh, wow. and when that happens, I like grab the guy and then someone shoots the back of the truck. Cause these are all, you know, pretty bad people. Uh-huh. Somebody shoots the back of our truck and our, and our, uh, the guy I was with, who was not an undercover guy. He was just like, kind of like my cover officer from another town. He, he like stands up out of the top of a, uh, of a, we were in a forerunner, there's a sunroof. Uh-huh. He stands up and starts laying like a base of cover fire oh at a high school God. party, <laughs> like with a Glock, just empties a magazine. Everybody's running and then he peels out of there. And we, like, dude, like, I'm like, dude so, how was your rep as a high school kid after that? Well, they were and, like, dude, don't mess with, what was your fake name? Do you remember your fake name? Well, my first name, I kept my first name. Okay. And, and then I changed my last name to my son's name, Hunter. So Chad Hunter. So Chad Hunter. Yeah. They were like, dude, don't mess with Chad Hunter. His so, buddy's, his buddy's crazy. So, so this guy, the guy who, uh, uh, his last name was McKinney. What was his first name? But he, he uh, so he comes, they come after me and they have like, they come after me. They, they had, between the group of them, they had an AK-47 and they were coming after me. So I'm picking up this girl from school, from high school. And these guys come, I didn't have my gun with me because it was in a car. So these guys try to jump me and I go to my car and we, and they, and I grab my gun and they come over the top and we get this like little altercation for my gun. And that, and after that, the whole thing was over. We ended up doing a massive arrest. So this guy, uh, <laughs> 
Thank God, bro. <laughs> it was, it was not, freaking AK-47s in high school. Yeah. You, were in, you were in freaking recon for four years <laughs> if you didn't that, see yeah. an AK-47. <laughs> no, I get to high school. So this, this, guy, this guy comes, uh, is they're looking for me now. Uh, so they pull me out of being undercover. We do this thing. So Benjamin McKinney's his name. And uh, so last year, I'm teaching a jiu-jitsu seminar and this guy comes up to me and he goes, do you know who I am? And, and it's, this, it's this guy, Benjamin McKinney. He's like, uh, he's like, I hope you don't hate me. And he like makes this big apology to me and uh, he's like, his life's like in good place right now. Mm-hmm. He's like, he went to jail for this and uh, you know, spent some time in jail and he's like been following me for years now. And he, and he like, now he's like, man, I really look up to what you're doing. What you're doing is amazing. Uh, he's uh, like, yeah, when I got my ass beat, don't worry. It was a fourth recon read and I was only 14. When you were, so this is like uh, stuff. He was, he was an adult though. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> he, was that like, guy he was like 18, 19 or something like that. When, how did you like being undercover? Did you like that? Yeah, was it, I did. did. It, it, it like right away, like I gravitated to that. Um, I don't like that stuff. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like. I don't like. I don't like pretend. Yep. And I just don't like that kind of thing. And and I always wanted to have like an American flag on my chest. Like this is me. I'm American. Yep. That's what we're doing. I was never suited for the other side of things. You know, I just yeah. just not part of my personality. And even as I think about like under even I guess the. the at least in high school, it doesn't seem like there'd be a huge threat level, although apparently there was. But it doesn't seem like you'd have to get too kind of complicated with your stories and your web of lies that you're telling. It's, it's not it's not super deep, right? Yeah. It's, it's pretty shallow. I had an apartment. My dad like was this old guy that worked at the sheriff's office, and he came in and would pretend to be my dad every now and then. But oh, another thing, you know, Lou, Lou Rivera. Lou yeah. Rivera. So he's a... Uh, he he lived like he went to the same high school no and we found this out later he went to the same high school and he knew about it and he like lived in the street that he used to buy crack off of <laughs> was, so That's i'm like dude classic. i think i bought i bought some crack from you before <laughs> I, I uh i don't know why like i never thought about doing that i never aspired to do that but when i did it i kind of liked it because i felt i felt like i could always adapt to any environment i was in like blend in with any group of people like I could go, you know, with rich people, poor people. Like I, I just blend everywhere I go, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of my personality. So I felt like it really worked in, in that in that world. Like really, I felt super comfortable doing that. So you got a good taste for for that type of thing, you know, um, which is cool. Now you you had uh, uh, officer involved shooting too. I did when you were a cop. What happened with that? So I had just got off of uh, the, the undercover thing. They put me on patrol and uh, and I went through the, I, had, I still had to go through the whole like FTO, field training officer thing. And this guy, this Marine named uh, Steve, Stephen Cantelli uh, trained me and a guy named, uh, him and a guy named Paul trained me. And then, so I'm, I'm done with field FTO and I'm working my beat, which is like the, they have these in the, East Bank of New Orleans uh, side, they had like these four beats, and so I was like the center one. And the guy like uh, one over for me was the guy that trained me, Steve Cantelli. And uh, I was just eating, and I remember hearing a, a call come over radio, and uh, Steve was like a really composed, like kind of very like solid guy, and, and I heard his voice like something was wrong in, in the radio system cut off. We had just got a brand new radio system for the whole department, you know, kind of Murphy's Law. Mm-hmm. It, it shuts off, and, uh, and so I'm like, man, something just inside me was like, he needs help so I like I remember speeding there and got my lights in my car and and, uh, and people were like stopping in the road instead of like pulling over and it was like having to like I remember just being panicked to get to him because I just felt this imminence to get to him and when I got to where he was it was just like a it wasn't like a trailer park but he's like modular homes and um, and it was elevated 
and there was about 30 people outside the front, like looking at this, the porch. And Steve was on the porch, uh, elevated porch with this woman and he's yelling with her. She, I could see her trying to get in the house and he's trying to hold her back, but he's still looking inside. And I, I come up on the porch and Steve's is this, like, is this nighttime? It's nighttime. Okay. Yeah. About, I get about 30 people out front. And, uh, and, uh, Steve's like, Hey, her and husband, you're, you're alone in your car. Yeah. So you're single, your, single person. You guys units. Are, you're going single person. Units. Yeah. Single Got person. Units. Yeah. So it's just me and him there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Steve says, Hey, this, this, her husband just barricaded himself in the back. His name was Russell Stebbins that we had been there before. He's, he's barricaded himself in the back. He's got a gun, get her off the porch. So I, I like tried to talk to her. She was arguing. I just grabbed her and, and, and a bunch of men down at the bottom. I just pushed over the rail and a bunch of men grabbed her and pulled her off. Her kids were down there. Uh, like, uh, I wouldn't say toddler, but like, you know, um, maybe like six, seven year old mm-hmm. kids down on the ground, uh, looking up and you could tell they were like scared trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on. And, uh, and so I came back and w- when I, when I turned back around, Steve, put me in the, in the doorway he's like hey stand right here i'm going to cover the window and and so he went to the window where which is the back room of this modular home so he couldn't shoot out the window and i stood in the doorway of this uh of the main of the, the like right in front of me is living room to the right's a kitchen and the catacorner across from me is a hallway and in the catacorner uh at the end of the hallway is a mirror and so i kind of see down the hallway and i'm standing in there and i, and I have a I have my, my Glock, I have a Glock uh, 40, 40 caliber pistol um, and, uh, and I, have it, I have it out. And when I seen him come into the window, that mirror, he had his uh, rifle kind of against him and he was like barricading himself. And I could see him manipulating the like press checking. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just start you know, yelling at him like, hey, put the gun down, come out, let's talk about it. He's like, I wanna see my wife and you guys need to leave. And I'm like, we're not leaving, you need to put the gun down. I'm kind of talking like a like a cop would, like you're trained to do, mm-hmm. and then um, he and what provoked him to do this, but he came around the corner and he had the gun over his shoulder, not like not like shoulder like to to fire, but he had it over his shoulder with the barrel pointed towards me. But it's, I could see his hand was by the trigger, but not mm-hmm. on the trigger, which is kind of weird that he would do it like that. And he was pointing it to me, but you know, in a lethal force continuum, like you could, I could have shot him right there, but for some reason I felt like I still had control uh, of the situation. And like, this a guy that's arguing with his wife. He obviously been drinking. Mm-hmm. There's still dinner on the table. There's a, his kids' toys are on the floor. There's family pictures. Like, right. you know, you don't want to kill someone unless you have to. Like, I mean, in that morning, if somebody would ask me, like, somebody points a gun at you, I'm like, yeah, I'm freaking gonna light him up. But now in that moment, like, the reality of it, like, man, I don't, I don't have to kill this guy right now. I can still control the situation. And so I, I, but I start yelling, and I'm like, not like a cop anymore. I'm like, I'm gonna fucking kill you, like put your gun down, I'm gonna kill you. And he's like, you put down your gun. And he gets in this alter, like verbal altercation back and forth with me. And he's, he was uh, 6'3", 230 pounds. I know his height and weight. So he's, a, I'm like 125 pounds. And uh, and I had been training a lot. I was training a lot of the time in Muay Thai and, and, and Jiu Jitsu. And so I, my, my confidence level was probably like, you know, I'm getting in fights all the time as a cop. And, and, uh, and so I decided to try to disarm him. So I walked, I kind of closed the distance on him with my gun retained in tight and I grabbed the barrel of his gun and pushed it away from me and I kicked him in the nuts like not like a football like kick but like a push kick mm-hmm. they'd like try to pull the gun out of his hand and uh man like nothing and the second time I kicked him I must have like pulled my arm away from me and he grabbed my wrist so now we're like fighting over so you have 
his rifle in your hand, but he has your pistol in his hand or my, your, your my wrist, your wrist in yeah. his hand. So neither one of you has control, full control over your firearms. That's right. And uh, and so at that point, I, I knew like he was not giving up. And so I just uh, I turned my wrist over like to break the grip. And I, I'm like I seen like center mass and I shot once. And then I then I pulled my gun in and I shot five more times. So I shot like six rounds, like pretty quickly. Uh, and then I didn't even realize Steve was behind me, but he was right over my shoulder. He shot six times. We hit him 11 times. I didn't drop the round, by the way. Always a good point to make. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, but it was it was so close, so center mat. Like, and he he turned, hit his knees, and uh, he looked back at me like conversationally, like he's like, "You killed me." And uh, and then he like fell over. I pushed him down and pulled the rifle underneath from underneath him, and uh, and I was trying to get his arms to handcuff him. And one of his wrists, I think when when I when I shot him one of his wrists went probably when i broke the wrist grip it went in front of his body and uh so it blew out his wrist so when i went to grab his wrist to handcuff him it was just like jello like uh, i remember just like getting i had like short sleeves on i felt i had like blood all over me and he like i heard, heard him breathe out and uh you know he kind of like exhaled and, mm -hmm. and breathed his last breath and uh and i handcuffed him and uh we searched the house and i heard all kind of police you know sirens and everything but coming like right then and i remember looking back like like right after when I was handcuffed, I, I looked right back out, and for some reason my eyes went. I want to like look back, and I, I don't know what happened first. If I heard her scream, or, or or if I seen her first, but I just remember his wife like screaming like the loudest, like blood curdling scream, and then I seen the kids just like, just like, just stoic, like just quiet, and then um and then the, everybody got there, separated me and Steve, and uh, we ended up getting our rights read to us, got the polygraph, the whole interview thing. And then the next day, uh, police chief called me up and was like, hey, don't read the newspaper. Of course I did. And said cold-blooded murder. And then underneath it say really small, please say justified. And I went through a long process of, I went before grand jury for second-degree murder indictment, got cleared by the grand jury. We got an award from the, uh, the governor, uh, Medal of Valor Award. Um, we went through a lawsuit, uh, all the stuff that goes along with something like that. And then... I was just like super bitter after that, and, uh, and you know, because of the way the department handled it. I mean, it was you know super political. Mm -hmm. No one wants to make a decision. Uh, the, the district attorney's office could have like not put us before a grand jury. It was very clear what mm -hmm. happened. But uh, we uh, that that was I, I had no interest in law enforcement after that. I was like pretty pretty jaded. And so then was it back in the Marine Corps? Well, I, I mean, I, I hung out. I actually went from patrol. And uh, that incident, because of that award, the chief had promoted me to detective. And so I'm like 23 years old. I've been, I've been on, you know, did my four years in the Marine Corps, did one, uh, seven to eight months undercover, did a year on patrol, and now I'm putting the detective bureau because I just got this big award. And, uh, and so I did that for a little bit until 9-11 happened. And then uh, when 9-11 happened, you know, it was, I think everyone was rushing back. Everybody mm -hmm. in the reserves was rushing back to their unit. I thought I was going to deploy right away. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, we we didn't, and so uh, the, I don't know if you remember that it's time the air marshals went around recruiting mm -hmm. at all the reserve units because you had special operations guys with top secret clearances, and so I, I was on that first I was in that first wave of guys that went to the air marshals, and I Got it. did a little bit of time there, and then and then how long how long did you do at the air marshals? Just under two years. It was it was super cool at first, then it became really lame really fast. What was the <laughs> what was the number of air marshals there were before nine eleven, and what was the number of air marshals there were after? Around forty five before. Um, I think the number after uh, number now uh, I, I wouldn't uh, know, but at the time they spun up from about forty. 
uh, for, a little bit over 40 and uh, about 2,000 pretty quick. And, uh, and the, you know, I, I got to give it to him. The, academy, the training, like I went through the first training was it was freaking good. Legit. It was legit. Like, uh, you know, we had to do the Fletzy stuff, the Federal Law Enforcement Academy stuff. We went down to Artesia, Mexico. But the shooting package was yep. the most competitive shooting package I'd ever, pistol shooting package I'd ever We used to shoot that, whatever their qual is. TPC, is Tactical that, Pistol Course. I just remember some qual that, that we called the Air Marshal. And I don't know, who knows if some yeah. team guy just saw it and whatever, talked to somebody about it. But we had some, and I forget what it was, but it was a, it was a good, tough, you know, if you weren't on your game, you you could blow some of the shots, yeah. which makes sense. Obviously, you're in an aircraft with a bunch of people, yep. and you only have a pistol. You want to be a freaking good pistol shot. Yep, it was it was good. And, How and, uh, long was that training for air marshal? Uh, I think it was like three months, three months, and then uh, and then I start flying, and I became the uh, uh, the training officer for the Denver field office. And because of my jiu-jitsu background mm. and uh, so, so that's right. This whole time, w w when did you start training jiu-jitsu hardcore? I, so I started my, when I was five years old. I went yeah. to a taekwondo school, mm -hmm. which and, and I did, obviously I don't remember why, but somehow I gravitated to the to traditional jiu-jitsu school and judo. Did that my whole life. And when I when I was on Twenty Nine Palms in 1995, I was a uh, I, I seen a sign for jiu-jitsu on base, and I went to take it, and it ended up being these two blue belts out of Torrance that were Hell coming yeah. down. And I got and I, I, I thought I thought need, it was bro. good. I got my, I got mauled, and I'm like, I want to learn that. Two people, you have two different reactions when you get experience in jiu-jitsu. You yep. either like, I never want anything of that to do with that again, or yep. I have to do this. Yep. And uh, and that was my reaction. Those, so in 95, I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> That's where black belts come from. The black belts go, dude, I want to, whatever that person knows, I need to learn everything I, have to I learn can that, about right? it. So that was a nice, so you started training pretty regularly back then, and, and then when you got out, where were you training in Louisiana? Uh, in in Metairie, Louisiana, there was a a guy named Hani Salas who was a black belt, but we found out he wasn't really a black belt. But he was from Brazil and he was really good at jiu-jitsu, yeah. way better than us. So he put on a black belt and we he was probably a, I think it was like a purple belt. Yeah. And we were like, and hey, so that we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot from him and a guy named Alfredo Ramirez who was a Japanese jiu-jitsu black belt. But he was really good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, he wasn't belting Brazilian jiu-jitsu at all, but he was really good. He had fought mm -hmm. in like the I, IFC. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we had a guy named Josh Stewart that fought in the early day UFC, uh, so we had some really uh, really good like MMA fighters and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and man we, we you know for back then uh, and I know you've been training that long back then it was it was it was tough mat tough a tough mat room yeah yeah <laughs> and and even you know back then if you had a blue belt some someone was a teacher you could you could run a school as yeah. a blue belt hundred oh, yeah. percent like yeah. there were schools all over. The place yeah. that not all over the place, but there was a lot of schools that just had a blue belt. Some blue belt was teaching, and that oh, was that. I remember going to purple belt seminars. Like, yeah, for like, sure. Oh my gosh, like for sure. <laughs> uh, when you, but you, and you had your first amateur fight in 1999. My first pro fight in 99. Oh, my first okay. amateur fight was in 97. Oh dang! Okay, I actually fought Dean Thomas. Dean oh Thomas, yeah, yeah, yeah. We fought. We fought. Uh, How'd you do against Dean Thomas? I lost. He, he, <laughs> He's a good they, freaking guy. They, they, lose. They, no told, they told me that it was his debut. He had just came back from Japan fighting Shudo. Oh dude, that's <laughs> Mon Monty up. Cox was the was the matchmaker back then, and uh, yeah. So, uh, but but yeah, me and Dan, me and Dean became friends over the years. But he's uh, and then in '99 I turned pro, and I did a couple of those fights where it was like the the four man brackets. Yeah, like back then, and and the rules were so like different back then. You could like stomp each other in the head. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a few fights where there were like these like uh, little like pads with with elastic under their fingers. Like, oh, not much for gloves. Not much for gloves <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah. So you, you're doing these fights. You have that officer involved shooting. Um, 
you you end up with the air marshals and then how long are you do it how long are you actually active working as an air marshal uh just under two years like and that whole time you're a reservist i'm a reservist yeah yeah i'm a reservist and uh and that's why I, you know the job they ended up having in that jsoc task force i feel super privileged to have because guys had like a lot more time uh more qualified than me but i think what got me i think what got me selected when i tried out for that task force eventually was that combination of experience mm-hmm. mainly my undercover experience uh they, they needed somebody to impersonate a teenager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I was start, I was That's to, wild, man. I was starting to grow my beard a little bit by then. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so then at what point you get, you get um, again, you're fighting. You had a fight that was October 20th, 2001, like right after yeah. September 11th. Yeah. What, what fight was that? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. I think it was like reality. Uh, what was, reality the, what was the atmosphere? The atmosphere must have been freaking heavy, dude. You know, um, that, yeah, because the, the atmosphere of the country was different, right? Yeah. You had flags in the, all over the streets and stuff like that. You, you know, for me, like, so fighting back then, and you probably remember this, it wasn't as big of a deal as, as it is now. Like, when I remember some of my first fights, like, we didn't even, like, have a fight card. We show up at a place and they like match you up like okay you're gonna go that guy looks the same height as you he's like 30 pounds heavier like that was kind of the risk there's, there's still fights like that dude i hate to tell you there's still fights like that you go out on the res here in california you, you can see some scraps going down like hey what how tall are you what way do you how tall are you what way do you what do you think you guys want a deal let's make it happen so but that was probably around the time that i was starting to do some you know there were shows you know yeah. and, and uh but it wasn't as big of a deal. I don't remember like like towards the end of my fighting, but fighting these bigger fights like Bellator and Strike Force. Like you had a camp, you know, like obviously like some of your guys here. But um, in those early days, like it wasn't a hey, you gonna have a fight this weekend? I'm gonna go fight and make oh, extra, yeah. extra, 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 extra five hundred bucks. Yeah, I get it from that perspective for sure. Nowadays, like people have camps and all yeah. that stuff. Back then, it was like. Hey, you want to fight this day? Yeah. Who am I going to fight? Well, I don't know. Whoever shows up, yeah. let's roll. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then at some point, you have an opportunity. Are you so you're in the Marine Corps Reservist, and the Marine Corps has you have an opportunity to go to a, a Joint Special Operations Command selection because they need a certain skill set that yep. kind of ties into the skill sets that you have. You know, you have done undercover work. You've been in law enforcement. You uh, you have experience. You know obviously with fighting so it's kind of like a good you have a good combination for this type of work that they're looking for and i had a really good uh connection so if you've seen the movie black hawk down there's mm-hmm. a guy named uh, the guy that was undercover like an afo uh guy he was riding a mountain bike pretending to be a journalist mm-hmm. they got they call the guy hoot in the movie which after norm hooten um uh, but norm hooten was actually a squadron like senior enlisted guy mm-hmm. rich Cachocho q was the the guy that was actually fo so he and i were very good friends and uh and he had uh, kind of taken me in his wing to teach surveillance detection at the at their marshals as a when i was running the um oh so you had that experience so had, as well yeah so I, yeah i was i was teaching uh surveillance detection uh i was teaching sd sdr uh i was even teaching at the state department for the state department on the side like going out and teaching sd so i had that background as well in that training and so rich cachocho and on top of all that you were in the marine corps so you had the infantry experience you had the recon experience so you're yeah. a really good candidate yeah. That's a really good candidate for someone that's going to be doing sort of undercover intel gathering, kind of clandestine logistics, which is what yeah. which is what they needed. That's exactly right. And so I, I, I really didn't even know what I was trying out for. You know, I just know Q. I trust him. I knew he was AFO at at at, uh, at CAG at, at Delta, and uh, really looked up to him. And he's like, I think you'd be a really good fit for this. I think you should try out. I'll put in a good word for you. 
And uh, so I went and did this assessment and selection and got and got picked up and uh, and got the opportunity to do you know what I believe is probably one of the you know biggest privileges of my life to serve in that capacity. So how long is that? How long is that school that you go to? That's that assessment selection and training. So the uh, the the assessment and selection was like a it was like a, a week long mm-hmm. of uh of you know interviews and and different skill like different skill sets proven different skill sets and then after that the training uh, I probably did I probably did about eight months of training just different school it wasn't like one school it was like different schools mm-hmm. a lot of them are uh, you probably seen this before a lot of them are like contractor government contractors yep. that run specific and some of the schools I went to were like specifically for like me like me and one other guy mm-hmm. like hey these two guys are coming to this school and so now we have like six instructors that are all former CAG and they're running a whole school for us uh, so awesome. it's very like high level training um, you know extremely uh, privileged to get that kind of like mentorship from guys that had done this job for a long time before and they were really preparing us they were preparing us not just for like a lot of times you go to military school and they're preparing you for service they were preparing us for a specific mission mm-hmm. and uh and so that really like when you do that it really elevates the level of training you know because you're training for something specifically they know what you're going to be doing they know who you're going to be doing it with they yeah. know what your resources they know what your area of operations is going to be everything yeah so you're getting totally detailed yep. training customized for for you and this at this time you're you are back to active duty marine corps yeah i went so i went to I went to active reserve, which in the Marine Corps, I'm, I'm sure the same in the Navy, you have an active duty, you have active reserve. So I went on an active reserve contract. So it put me back on active duty fastest way possible. Got it. And that, that's a, that was the fastest way possible for me to give it But back your on. paycheck was coming from the Marine Corps from the Marine for Corps. this for this time period. For this time period. And now, there was a point to where uh, I switched to have a direct contract with my command. Uh, you know, at the JSOC command that I was at, yep. which they do a lot. They do that a lot in this particular command. They're just like, hey, we want you to stay here. We like you. Uh, you're going to do the same job, but we're going to contract you directly. And right. that's that's how I ended up staying at the unit that I was at. Got it. Um, so 2003, you you do your first deployment here to Afghanistan. Um, I'm actually going to go to the book here. This is the the book. Once again, and look, this, we're going to read a small portion of this book today. There's all kinds of details in here that I'm not going to go into. There's all kinds of stories that I'm not going to read because, well, get the book and and you can read it. But um, this is one part I think ties this in pretty good. You say I was conducting logistical support operations for my assaulter teams tasked with capturing or killing the highest value targets of Taliban leaders in the Afghanistan region, getting my guys out safely, and everything else in between. Aziz was my interpreter from start to finish. He had been teaching English in that apartment building when my teammate Andy recruited him to our task force. Aziz spoke English extremely well, and as crazy as it sounds, teaching English under Taliban rule was a risky way to make a living. Aziz was 25 years old, married, and knew his country inside and out. He was also street smart and capable, a necessity for an interpreter in our task force's assignments. As with all the Afghans hired as interpreters, we brought Aziz in at entry level to allow him, to allow us time to see him at work and discern how much we could trust him. Interpreters' job description varied depending on the units which they were attached. An interpreter assigned to an administrative unit, for example, would be asked only to interpret, but in, in an infantry unit, an interpreter would also fight alongside our troops. By signing up for special operations, Aziz knew he was taking on a dangerous assignment, but that fit his personality, courageous and passionate. 
of the local nationals working with us, Aziz quickly worked his way into becoming our most capable and trusted. Although Aziz came to us with no former military background, his father had been part of the Afghan army in the late 1980s that the, or sorry, in the 1980s that the Soviet Union helped build up in support of its fight against insurgent groups. Aziz had grown up around fighting from childhood and understood the military mindset. We fast-tracked Aziz's trainings. Our command's job was to hunt down the most wanted bad guys on the battlefield, and we made sure Aziz could shoot, communicate as needed, and facilitate everything necessary. At times, I worked alongside other task force team members, but mostly I was alone except for having Aziz with me. Aziz and I traveled in what into what we called non-conventional or non-permissive areas where combat support and support forces were not operating. In addition to working in Afghanistan, we worked in the federally administered tribal area that blurred the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Our purpose was to go into these areas to establish a presence and build soft missions support for kinetic action contingencies and escape and by the way it's funny uh i'm looking at the book right now there's a bunch of stuff that when you sent this book to the pentagon they redacted a bunch of a bunch of things and you know with my background i i know what's redacted i'm trying to read it in a way that we don't don't have to keep (laughs) saying redacted but um there's a bunch of stuff in here that they've blacked out and that that's fine it doesn't it doesn't impact understanding of what's going on but you just gave sort of the background of what you guys were doing, you know, going in there, you've got, you know, assault teams or tactical teams that are going to go and do missions, hit targets. Well, there's th- those guys need certain support. And yeah. that's what you guys were doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people look, you know, you look at like, how does how does a, you know, assault force get on get to a target in a non permissive area? and get off target safely like where there's no support like and uh usually you know people don't realize is those guys that go there before them and mm-hmm. set it all up and then yep. all the contingencies right you, you think of safe house like what goes in a safe house you know ammo guns blood a safe rum money clothes vehicles with permits on those vehicles to be able to get through certain checkpoints <clears> and know know what know what know what uh, those checkpoints could be looking for so those vehicles have to have all those things like somebody goes ahead Figures all that out and puts it all in place. That way, when you know it's go time, everything's done flawlessly. And, uh, yeah, it's like when you when you go and watch like a documentary about a rock and roll band. Sure. Right. The yeah. rock and roll band they show up in Chicago, bro. There's there's a hotel room for them. Their drinks are the where they want them. Mm-hmm. There's like security set. Everything's ready. All they do is got to do is get there, get on stage and rock and roll. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. all the other stuff, like even the flights coming in, the people picked them up at the airport. All that stuff is taken care of. There's, you know, depending on what, who the rock band is, maybe there's some uh, substances there that they request that had to be acquired. There's all this stuff going on. It has to be done in a clandestine way. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like team. I like team guys. (laughs) They get no, they get no freaking, uh, they get no uh, glory, right? Right. Those, it's like even not, not even the roadies, not even the roadies. We're not talking, we're talking before the roadies show up. Right. So all those logistics have to take place before the band can rock and roll. And it's hard to do that in a non-permissive in a combat environment, and uh, that's kind of kind of what you have going on with yeah, your job. Yeah. And it takes an incredible amount of effort to make that happen. Yeah, one of the things you said earlier is that you know a lot of guys in in, in special operations community 
Like that sounds like super sexy and everybody want to do that, but a lot of guys, special operations community, do not want to do that job yeah. when they learn about it. And uh, and there's certain <clears> guys that like that like are built to do it and love doing that thing. And for me, that was like I didn't even know this job existed. And then once I learned, I'm like, this is right <laughs> up my alley. This is exactly like what I'm supposed to be doing, and and I enjoyed it and I liked it. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's like I said, I'm not suited for that job. I mean, even just, I mean, look, I was doing work with a, with an OGA one time and the guy's like, dude, you, you have no, you have no, you have no reason to be here. Like you, you stand out as a special operations guy from any angle. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> he's like, you could not get this. He said, you could not get the special operations stink off you if you tried. And I was like, yeah, Roger that. Um, so that's the way it is. And it's, it's funny too. It's not like I, you know, not like I ever thought about that. That's just. My whole sure life, are, I just yeah. grew up, you know, that in the teams, like you're going to end up being that way. And I guess I, I guess I ended up being that way a lot. <laughs> yeah, so we, anyways, uh, we, we had a, we had a team guy that was like put in with us one time. Uh, I'll say his name off, off air if you want to later, but I don't see it here, but he was that way. They tried to put him in with us cause he had this like specific skill set for this one, like, like a feasibility study we were doing for a future operation. Mm-hmm. And he was like, check like Raj I'm like I'm like dude like you just freaking skinned alive like yeah, and so we, all day long so he, he was just you know he just looked it too and and uh and you probably know him but I was uh, yeah. so we ended up having him like really just train me up and uh, not come out like he just really spun me up on something that I had no experience doing but he really he really yeah. trained me up <laughs> I'm not going undercover anywhere is basically what I'm getting at um we we were one time uh we were in Jalalabad. Uh, it was me and Aziz in uh in in Dave Lamone, and the three of us are in this in this where like warehouse. We had set it up. We had like vehicle stage and the so the team guys so so the team guys that came there they they want to free fall in. I don't think they really needed to free fall, but they wanted it for that free fall <laughs> jump in Afghanistan. <laughs> so they, so they, they they actually did a. I, we were supposed to, I was, I wanted in on it too. So we thought we were get to go in, and we ended up not getting to go in on it. But they jumped in and uh, and then patrolled over to where we were at. And, and there's medicine in this warehouse and they get in there and they're like coming in and they like, you know, got their quads on and they're like, you know, do it, doing a, you know, the perimeter, like doing their, st- their sills, like stop, look, listen, smell. They're like mm-hmm. doing all this. And, and uh, we're just like, Hey, what's up guys? Like coming out with our tea. Like, like you guys are freaking stupid. <laughs> they're like, like, you guys are nuts. We're like yeah, we live here. <laughs> uh, right on. You go on to say here, I was assigned well over a hundred missions. Uh, no one was beside me or more instrumental in the success of, in the success of these message missions as much as Aziz. His skills, expertise, knowledge, and connections made our work successful. Aziz and I continuously operated in environments dangerous to us, not only because we were embedded in Afghanistan, but by the nature of our assignments because we were in areas where our command wanted to target operating Taliban. We went by ourselves to where the Taliban were without military support immediately available to us. So that's what you're doing. Um, and, and again, some people are gonna have to use your imaginations a little bit because obviously a lot of what you're doing was, was and still is classified, but that's, that's the type of missions that you're doing. You're in areas where you're not gonna get support. Your, your best methodology for survival is being able to blend in and, and keep that stuff uh, as tight as you possibly can. So you, you're going, you're, 
you're doing these missions. How often are you going on deployment? How how long are you coming home for? What are they? So, these are shorter deployments, right? Shorter deployments, yeah. I think a lot, a lot of people are like eight deployments. And, my, and in fairness, my deployments were like like four months long. Mm-hmm. I think the longest one was six. And uh, and then I come, but I come home for like three months. Mm-hmm. and be back out again. Sometimes even sixty days, I'd be home just enough to go to some. And it's not really like going home and relaxing. I'm going home and. Going to schools. Going to schools, getting trained up for the next. We do a, every every time out. We do a we do a pre deployment uh, called loan, it was called loan operator course. We go to Las Vegas. A guy named J. Uh, it's called JTM mm-hmm. Jim Jim Mitchell train or JMT Jim Mitchell training. He's a former PJ guy. Has mm-hmm. a bunch of CAD guys on his staff. They would do all the pre deployment stuff. And so I get so yeah. There's always just training between, and then you back out again. Mm-hmm. How's your wife like all this? Uh, actually, at the time. Uh, our kids are small, mm-hmm. and, so, she's just uh, so she's just like so busy, busy. Yep. and and she's uh, I say that's not insulting to her at all. It's actually probably was a blessing for us. She was like extremely naive to what I was doing, mm-hmm. and she didn't care. Like I could have been out there as as a Halliburton cook, yep. like and she didn't know the difference yep. or care. Like, <laughs> like you're going you're going that to sounds work a lot. Like my wife, <laughs> yeah, she's just <laughs> like, like yeah, going to work. Yeah, whatever. That, when yeah, you get me home, I'm pretty sure I'll be home in six months. Okay, yeah. bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna pack your lunch, like, <laughs> like she. I mean, if I went home and said I want to be a bank robber tomorrow, she'd actually go on a lunch. But you know, like, she just said, she, that's none of that matters to her. She's never been impressed by the recon thing or all this. Like, she just did not faced by it at all. So she was just really. She's a mom and she's a housewife, and that's what she loves to do. And that's not, you know, that's just who she is. And so she just really thrived in just taking care of her kids and making sure she always felt like her part was to make sure that I didn't have a heavy burden. Mm-hmm. Of, of what was going on back home. That's also very similar to my wife. My wife yeah. was like, she got, you know, she was taking care of the home front so I could go and do my job. In the meantime, you're also coming, you're still fighting. <laughs> you know, I was like looking at your record um, on SureDog or whatever, one of those, and you, you, 2004, February 7th, you had a fight. A pro fight, you won. Um, April 19th, you had a pro fight, you won. November 16th, you had a pro fight, you won. This is like, you're, you're an active, those are normal Those are normal intervals for a professional fighter in this day and age. Well, I was, I was fighting, I, I was fighting guys that were training full time too while I was doing, so like I'd be over, I, I always carried a jump rope with me in bands, because uh-huh. you can't go out jogging in, uh, yeah. in Jalalabad. Yeah. So I'd, I'd always had a jump rope, I always had bands with me everywhere I went, uh, and, and uh, and I ran into some, I had this guy, I ended up hiring him. He was a wrestler from Afghanistan and we'd carry mats with us and wrestle with him. And right it, he on. was actually pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was teaching him jujitsu. He was a really good wrestler and, and I trained with him out there. But I mean, I come back and, and as part of, uh, you'll probably relate to this. It was part of my, you could get really out of shape really quick in this, in this job because I'm not. I'm not, I'm at, they don't have the gym. I don't have, you know, go, I'm, I'm not on base. I'm going yeah. out and I'm like three months out in the mountains. Yeah. And so you get really out of shape really fast. So when I come home, like I would crush myself, like I, I have to get myself back in. And so putting a fight on the calendar for me was like a mental like target to push myself. And I've always kind of been that way. I always want something on the calendar. Cause I'm, I'm like, when you talk about discipline a lot, like I'm, I'm probably the the hardest working, lazy person I know. Like, because like I'll, I'll finish a fight and then the next morning I'm like I'm like too lazy to take vitamins. Like so, like having it, <laughs> so having like a something on the calendar always pushes me to uh, to be prepared. Mm-hmm. I never I never like doing something and not prepared for. So if I had that date on the calendar, so it's doing these fights where or something that would like force me back into. I come home and I'm like, can I compete? 
a jiu-jitsu tournament, an MMA fight, like, can, can I compete while I'm home? And that would push, push me to get back in shape. I'd, now, it seemed like there was a chunk of time a few years where, you know, you you didn't fight. You were probably just absorbed in work. That's what yeah. my assumption is. You're just working, going on deployment, and you, you, you don't feel like you're um, ready to fight. Yeah. And, and these deployments just continue. Um, that being said, 2009, you know, January 31st, you fight. Um, you win. April 17th, 2009, you fight. You win. November 7th, 2009, you fight. You win. You got a freaking good record at this point. Like, you were undefeated, actually. Yeah. That's yeah. that's freaking outstanding. I think Sher- Sherdog's missing, like, like five fights, too. Oh, so, are they? Yeah. So <laughs> well, I, I think your record ended up being, like, 13. 13? Sure dog has 13 mixed martial arts.com has 18 and two. So, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go uh, a bunch of fights you're you're living this life um, And it sounds cool when we're talking about it right now, mm-hmm. but it, it started to take its toll. Yeah, and I'm gonna go to the book here for a chunk You say this during my eighth and last deployment I was conducting a feasibility study for an operation targeting a high-level Taliban leader in the mountains Aziz flew in to help while we were there, we got caught up in the middle of a tribal rivalry. We were inside a building when we heard shooting break out from both sides of the street. I looked out to see cars blocking the road, wagons flipped over, and tires on fire for hasty cover as the tribal members fired each other. It was rather typical. It was a rather typical day for such a hostile area, but Aziz and I wanted no part of the action. We scrambled through the back of the building and escaped the area. We completed the study, and one of our special operations teams came in and killed the Taliban leader. I was called back to the Persian Gulf to meet with our leadership, and they informed me the Taliban had captured and killed a group of 10 Afghan team members who had worked for me. This was a special group to me. I'd eaten in their homes with their families and played with their kids. These guys knew my location and possessed the ability to compromise me. The Taliban held them for a week and then hanged them, except for two who flipped to the Taliban side and then turned the others over, causing their deaths. I loved these men. They were my friends. I would have died for them, and they would have died for me. In fact, I believe they did die for me. Despite being compromised, I returned and continued to on with our operation because I believed its importance was worth the personal risk. A few days after I arrived, I was abducted by Taliban sympathizers. At 5 a.m., I heard a knock on the door, and through the window, I could see Jack, a guy who I had spent time with in his home, and, and an older man. Jack claimed to be Canadian, but he was clearly Pakistani. Both were dressed in suits and ties. When I opened the door, two more guys came out of hiding. The four men forced me out of my doorway and into the back of a car. They drove me to the hills outside of town. I thought for certain they were going to kill me, but I was going to put up a hell of a fight when the first gun came out. The, heavily, the men heavily interrogated me for an hour or two, but I held up, and for some reason, they chose to release me. I attempted one more operation after that, but my mind was not in a good place. I was experiencing severe physiological reactions, panic attacks, and mental disassociation, sometimes feeling as if I had awakened from a dream state. That's sketchy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know they some of that was redacted, and, uh, yeah. and I changed the wording, but you know, I won't say which one, but it was a, a foreign intelligence agency that that uh, grabbed me and I knew who, I knew it was when they grabbed me and uh, you know I you know when, once fear sets in you if you don't deal with it it, it 
becomes just erodes you mm-hmm. and uh I remember flying back in after we learned us, our guys were killed and, and making a decision because it was like, hey, you guys still in? And uh, I was like, and disease too. And was, we were like, yeah, we're, we have to. We've been putting three years into, into this this operation. And uh, and uh, that flight over, I remember I landed in Beijing. And on that layover in Beijing was the first time I ever had a panic attack in my life. I didn't know what it was. I thought they sprayed like for the bird flu uh, thing. And I was like, man, like I had a allergic reaction. I tried to get off the plane. They wouldn't let me off the plane. And I was having a panic attack. And then and then when I landed uh, in the country I went to, that, that when I landed there, I was I was in bad shape and I was by myself. And so I started dealing with these panic attacks and I knew that that intelligence agency was out to get me. And I pushed, you know, I think it was just too much to push forward uh, through. And, uh, and then not, I, don't, I don't know if I mentioned it in there, but in another spot, we had a house in Afghanistan. They drove a V-bed, a vehicle bomb into our house, leveled our house. Um, it was it was it was bad bad time, and uh, I was in I was in bad shape. You say this here. Um, fast forward a little bit, and again, there's a lot of details in here that I'm skipping over, but that's why people get the book. You say the execution of our Afghan teammates, the interrogation, and the attempt to kill me and my teammates shook me up pretty good. My panic attacks and physiological symptoms were progressing rapidly. Or sorry, yeah, physiological symptoms were progressing rapidly. In a moment of clarity, I concluded my declining mental condition had placed me and others in danger. I needed medical help. I communicated to my leadership over an open phone line that I wasn't feeling well, and instead of visiting a local doctor, I needed to see one in the Gulf. That was a signal that something serious was wrong with me. I booked a round-trip flight to avoid raising suspicions and left behind all my personal belongings other than what I stuffed into an overnight backpack. At the airport leaving, I was paranoid about everyone around me. I noticed more police inside the airport than normal. I believe they were looking for me. I passed through customs with the feeling that I was rolling the dice for my life in a game of roulette only to make it through and then learn my flight was delayed. I was convinced they were holding up the flight until they caught me. I remember staring at the hands on the clock and feeling like time was frozen. Finally, we were called to board the plane. To this day, I can't clearly I can clearly remember every moment of going through the gate and jetway to walk onto the plane. I don't know if I ever felt more relieved than when the wheels lifted from the runway and we cleared the mountains. My leadership held me in the Gulf for four days, I guess to ensure no one was following me. They prohibited me from calling anyone, but I called my grandmother, Granny, who was like a mother to me. My panic attacks had convinced me I was dying and I wanted to tell her goodbye. Then I called my wife, Kathy, for the first time since we met, she heard weakness and fear in my voice. Kathy arranged to fly there to be with me, but my command sent some of our team members to our home and shut down her plans of coming over for her safety and to prevent further compromise. I spent four days in the Persian Gulf alone. I ventured out to a pharmacy and purchased Valium to calm me down and get me through the flight to the States. Even at home, I wasn't mentally right. I was nonstop anxious. My hands and arms would go numb, then my face, my throat would feel like it was swelling shut and I struggled to breathe. I would feel like I had a thousand pound weight on my chest. I met with a psychologist and was diagnosed with severe chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Subsequently, I was removed from the task force, along with the operations I was participating in. By that point in my career, I had direct contract with my command, meaning I was no longer on active duty. I essentially was out of a job and home for good. I brought all the anxiety, guilt, frustration, anger, and shame home with me. 
being pulled out of the game without finishing the business of stopping the Taliban and making Afghanistan safer, which I had come to dedicate my life to, made things worse. Nobody understood me, I believed. Everyone was against me. And the toxic mix of thoughts and fears raging inside me was their fault, not mine. I closed myself off to others. All I knew to do was what I had trained to do, fight. But now I was fighting for myself and by myself, and I was losing. I trained in martial arts since age five and in Brazilian jiu-jitsu since age 19. I'd also competed as an amateur and professional mixed martial arts fighter with an unbeaten record. Kathy suggests we open a jiu-jitsu school and I went full bore into training and running the school. I also returned to fighting professionally in MMA. Within three years, our school grew to two locations and a thousand students and I still had not lost a fight had won a world title and climbed to number six in the world rankings in the flyweight division. I looked like I was winning at everything, but my life was a complete failure. Kathy and I separated and filed for divorce. I convinced myself the best thing I could do for our three children was commit suicide. In September 2010, while pressing a pistol to my head, I heard someone outside my apartment door. I hid the gun. When I opened the door, Kathy was standing there. We engaged in a heated argument that led her to ask me a life-altering question. Chad, how can you do all the things you've done in the military, Afghanistan, be willing to die for your buddies, train so hard for your MMA fights, and show such discipline to cut weight for competitions, but when it comes to your family, you quit. There's no more soul-cutting word to me than being called a quitter, but she was absolutely correct. I had found professional success, but when it came to the most important things like being a husband and a father and having the, the will to get well, I had quit. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very, uh, looking back, it's, uh, it was, the, that spiral happened like, like so quickly. I mean, it was three years, that spiral was three years, but it was, it was, it would just, it happened so quickly and it was so out of control. And I, I just kept trying to find ways to get control of my life and, man, I just couldn't. Um, and I, I was, I think more than anything, like the panic attacks and the, the level of panic attacks were like debilitating. Like I felt like literally, like the best description, I felt like I was going to die. But on top of all that, where I was worse for me, as I was embarrassed. I, I was, I was just, that, that's the simplest word I could give for it. I was, I was just embarrassed. Cause well, I felt, so what were you embarrassed about? Cause you know, you, I worked my whole life to get, you know, my whole, like you know, we talked about my story, like everything at work to get to a place like that, that I didn't even feel like I was qualified to be at because there's so many people that had so much more military experience than me to be able to be at a unit like that, to be on that mission. And I was like, when I was doing a cross border stuff, like I was given like the keys to the kingdom to do this operation. Uh, like, so I felt so privileged to be there. And then I was entrusted with all of this. And then I felt like I failed. You know, I felt like I failed at it. I felt like I was like, like if I played NFL, you know, made it little league all the way to the D1 college and then the NFL and the Super Bowl and then you, you fumble the ball. That's what I, I felt like I did. I was entrusted with this and, I, and I, I failed and I was embarrassed. And, you know, you've been in that environment. Some people kind of allude, alluded to that. And, and uh, you know, there's people that I that I trusted and looked up to and would have would have died for them. And, and they were like, you know, looked at me that way uh, and, and even said things to you know hey man you like let us down like you know you were you were fine last month you were fine last month like and uh man it, it was things like 
you you don't you don't like brush those things off when they're people you respect and uh and it, and it hurt and i was just like embarrassed and uh and so i just wanted to hide from it like like i talk like right now everything about my life's like military you know my instagram and everything, but in that time when i came back i didn't want any i didn't want to mention anything about the military to anyone that three years was like jujitsu people asked me about the military i just like pretty much ignore them i didn't want to talk about what years like was this uh 2000 i came home in april of 07 and uh so from april of 07 to pretty much uh, 2010 was where was your jiu-jitsu schools in the woodlands texas oh okay so if you uh, if you follow a guy named alex morano he's a ufc fighter right now he's uh he was one of my students back then he runs the same school now mm-hmm. uh, what's the name of the school now now it's gracie baja the woodlands got it so and that school's still there that school's still there yeah it's a it's a pretty thriving school they got they just put out put out the last ultimate fighter ricky tercios came out of, he was he was a kid in my school back then so he just they but they put out some good guys that's all that's awesome it's just so bizarre right like to read this and you got your school i mean a thousand students at a jiu-jitsu school or even two jiu-jitsu schools but that means you're financially doing doing totally comfortable i mean that's a great job you're impacting people you're around people all the time right like so it's not like you're isolated from an external perspective, right? You got right. students, you got other instructors. But you know what I was just isolated from was accountability. I had systematically uh, pushed everybody out of my life that would say anything uh, hard to me. And, and I had made my life to where everybody just lifted me up and no one told me the things I needed to hear. People just told me what I wanted to hear. I, I did that. Like, uh, and, I, and I was, I felt like I was, probably, I was pretty, pretty good at that. Like I could just manipulate relationships to, to have people around me that just like lifted me up and enabled me. And no fault to any of them. I was, I was, I was doing that. And and like you said, the the jujitsu school, like the success of it, we opened the doors. Like I came home in April. By the by, summer, like I'm like I'm gonna be out of money. Like I need to figure out how to take care of my family. So I like just got back and 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 just started to grind to make this work. And I opened the doors with like 180 students, which you know so, back so then. In, day one, you were making I'm making good, yeah. good money. Yeah, I was able to to take care of my family right away. So coming out, so anybody on the outside looking at this would have thought. You know, I, I'm, I was being successful, but I mean, I was still dealing with panic, like debilitating panic attacks. I was a tyrant to my family. Like, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm like a pretty like, like kind person. Like, mm-hmm. uh, especially I, I'm like, love my, love my family uh, tremendously. And but at that time, I was like yelling at my wife, like a Marine Corps drill instructor, punching holes in the wall, slamming doors, breaking things. Uh, it was one time I came home like from my my little girl's birthday, and she's having a birthday party, and she didn't like the icing on her cake, like something super something super simple and I like picked up my little girl's cake and threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday and I'm, i remember like what kind of person what kind of dad behaves that way and i was just so out of control that i just started isolating myself more because i i just felt like it was a behavior that i couldn't get get hold of so really this manifested all this bad behavior from you manifested in your wife filing for divorce like yeah because i'm done with this shit well, it really, I think she was in. She was. She was trying so hard. Like, uh, she's like a really strong woman of faith. She was like, she was like trying so hard. And uh, but our marriage just kind of me isolating myself. And marriage just like drifted apart. So I'd sleep in a friend's house at the gym. I had like a place to sleep at the gym. I would uh, sleep in my kids' room. My wife and I talk now a lot about it. Like the loneliest place we say we've ever been is not me away in deployment, but in our own beds. Like our backs turned to each other, mm. and just like a dead marriage. And, and so we were just like really separating our own home staying together for the kids and you know there's a lot of girls around jujitsus and jujitsu gyms and so it didn't take long for me to end up in relationships with other women so i ended up in a full-blown affair and didn't really give me care like i was so like callous 
and I had like so little empathy that I didn't even care. So when my wife found out the solution was, let's just get divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't working anyway. And uh, so we filed for divorce, moved into two separate apartments, signed 12 month leases. So we were pretty committed, you know, felt, sold our home that we worked so hard to buy. And, uh, and uh, my wife and I had two really different reactions. Uh, she went to a church. Um, she changed churches. She went to a church to be around people that she thought would be like really supportive, like a not, like a good positive group. Not people that would be like, "Oh, your husband's a you know jerk anyway." Like there was people that would like give her good support. And uh, and she said, you know, she would go in there not just on Sundays, but like every, like a couple of days a week and just pray for me and. You know, she's, people would wonder, you know, what could a woman pray for you and when you're being the, behaving that way? And she said she would pray, like, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. Like, that's what she was, like, doing this for me while I'm, like, running around with women. And I'm, I'm like, my reaction was I got this apartment, bachelor pad set up in, like, two days, no family pictures outside. I had all my family pictures. It's kind of grotesque for me to say it, but I had all my family pictures on a, on a shelf in my closet. So, like, when girls would come over, that they wouldn't see that stuff. And and uh it's like totally being a degenerate i signed up for a fight on strike force uh that's like one of the last big strike force cards ufc had owned strike force at the time and uh and so i just like dove into that i'm like i can stay busy i don't have to deal with this woman anymore and i fought a kid named Roberto de leon and we were like it was like a highly touted fight because he was like we we're both in the area and he was like I forget what his professional record was, but he was like really known for amateur because he went like 18 and 0 as an amateur and uh he's like a really good striker and they were talking smack about me being a ground guy I had submitted all my opponents but i wouldn't st- strike so ego got the best of me i was feeling pretty good in my boxing i stood in the middle of that cage with him and we it was like my rocky fight like back and forth i had submitted everyone before but now i like go to a decision and every round like he punched me and knocked me down and i kicked him in the face and knocked him down even knocked his mouthpiece out like a uh, good good teeth kick to the face it was like a pretty good fight and at the end i remember they're like they're like gonna announce a decision and i'm like oh my gosh like what happened i don't even remember what happened and my corner's like it's gonna be close man and i'm like and they had called the one judge calls for humberto the other's for me and i'm like oh my gosh i just lost my first fight and then the third judge calls for me my hands raised and you know ten thousand people screaming and i remember like having this moment you know and you, you've been in that, that cage where, like people are screaming and it's like loud and, and like deafening but like everything got quiet and i remember thinking like man all these people here and kathy's not here and i just fought so hard for this stupid like which I love jujitsu, right? But but in context, right? I fought so hard for this stupid win on my record. But meanwhile, my family's like devastated. And that's when I went home that night with my head held. I just went, me and Tim Kennedy, because he fought in that card. We had an after fight party. Ranger up threw it for us at, uh, at Buffalo Wild Wings. I stopped in, checked in, went home to my apartment. And I was laying in bed just realizing like, man, I'm like, what do I have? Like my life, like everything that I'm good at is over. My life's like, I don't have any purpose moving forward. My family's the only thing I have and I destroyed them. And I'm in and a thought came over me like maybe my family would be sad without me, but they'd be better off. And you know that you know, you know, that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of twenty something veterans every single day. And I didn't want to take my life to escape my situation. I thought it was the betterment for the betterment of my family and and uh and I really had believed that. Um and I made the decision to do that. So you made the decision you're gonna kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. What, I, that night after you freaking won strike force? Yeah. Yeah, I was laying in my bed that night. That's when I decided. And I wasn't going to tell anybody. I didn't want anyone to intervene. Uh, the one thing that would, uh, so I would sit in that closet. I put my, I literally put my family pictures on the floor around me. And like, like and I had that like Glock 22 pistol. And when I put the gun to my head, I would have this vision of like, 
how would it play out? Like somebody's gonna find you. Somebody's gonna hear a gunshot. You're not gonna show up somewhere. It's an apartment. You're gonna start smelling. Like someone's someone's gonna find you. And uh, the only other person I had a key to my apartment at the time was my oldest son Hunter, who's 13 at the time. So, and I had heard a statistic that one in three children from a parent that commits suicide would do it as well. And uh, and so I, that thought would come in my mind. I'm like, man, my son's gonna find me. So that was enough to pump the brakes. But I'd be in such a dark place. I'd be back at it. Uh, like I was convinced that that was the right thing to do i convinced myself of that and then that's when kathy i came i was how in that long, closet. how long were you in that mindset for about two weeks and i'd snap out of it but i was just like this looming it, it was almost like this feeling like, like like i'm driving like there's a pole i could just turn my wheel or you know i'm standing on the edge of the building like, i just i just have to jump like i have a bottle of pills next to me like i just have to then it's done like i just had this like it was just like the, almost like this like a almost like a spiritual like influence like just like and uh, you know, I'm not saying that's what it was, but it was just like it was like something just looming that was just like there for like. And I had thought about it a lot before, but in that two weeks, I was like committed to do it. And uh, and uh, but I just could not get past that. How to how to get past not leaving that for my kids. And uh, and and then that's when Kathy came to my apartment. I was literally uh, I had that pistol, and she knocked on the door. I wasn't going to answer it because I didn't know who it was. But when I heard her voice. Uh, this is my apartment, my closet. She would never came in there, but I panicked uh, and I hid that gun under a blanket, which was probably because of shame. And I went to the door and I was so, it sounds twisted to say, but I was so mad that she was there interrupting me, killing myself, that I just started screaming at her. And she's not a very calm arguer, but but in that moment, she was like, she was like totally calm. And she asked me that question, you know, how could you do all the stuff? She like laid out all this stuff. And weight cutting was always a big thing to her because she's like the amount of discipline, like I could like, n- having i love doritos like i don't eat them now but i ha- but like just to lick i wouldn't even lick the nacho cheese off in a, in, a, in, a, in a house by myself like that kind of discipline she's like how could you do all of that because she had to see all that you know and how could you do all of that but when it comes to your family you'll quit what was it that brought her over that specific night did she like how does she explain that what she she had talked to me that morning i don't recall the conversation but she had a, a, a intuition that i was gonna hurt myself and she had she just she just said she just knew uh something was wrong something was off and she felt like i was gonna hurt myself and uh i didn't say anything to uh, allude to that but she just had that that women's intuition you say this in the book uh kathy was attending church and praying for me my recovery and our family i asked if she could find a man at her church to counsel me and provide accountability that led to Steve Toth entering my life and leading me to become a Christian. Before them, before then, I would say I was a Christian. I wore military dog tag that claimed I was one, but for the first time in my life, I surrendered my life to Jesus. After my recovery, I created a ministry called the Mighty Oaks Foundation to help combat veterans and those from the military communities suffering from PTSD and life issues to move beyond life's hardships and into the life God created us all to live. Over 20 veterans a day were committing suicide, and I felt compelled to tell every struggling veteran I could the lesson I had learned during my journey. In life, just like in combat, we aren't meant to fight alone. With Mighty Oaks, they wouldn't have to. So that's when you started the the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Yeah, you know, I tried everything. I had been on the medication. I'd been through all the counseling at the VA and civilian counseling programs, and Financial success, like you said, a jiu-jitsu, professional success, I had the accolades. Like some of those things are good, some of those things are bad, but none of those things really changed my situation. And, and uh, you know, when Steve 
You know, I had literally like wrote a five paragraph order, op order of how I was gonna fix my life. I met him with him at Starbucks. I wanted him to show it to my wife. So I like proudly and smugly slid it over to him and he didn't even look at it and he slid it back over to me and told me I was gonna fail. I remember being like super offended, but then he tapped on a paper and he said, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not gonna waste your time. I'm not gonna let you waste mine. And like I said, I tried everything. And so it was the one thing that I had never really been intentional about. And so I made a decision to surrender my life to Christ, become a Christian. But beyond that, Steve mentored me an entire year in what would be called discipleship, you know, biblical living and teaching me how to uh, how to make better choices. And that's what I really discovered. Like as bad as like some things have been in my life, like, you know, like the loss of friends and, you know, the pain that comes with that and, and my childhood and all these bad things that happened to me, as bad as those things were, those things didn't lead me to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand. What had led me there were the choices that I made in response to those things. And so I had really inventory in my life through his mentorship that Steve was giving me. Like the reason I was going down this trajectory I was going was I was just making bad choices. And so as Steve started mentoring me in his biblical living, I still had anxiety. I still had depression. I still dealt with anger and frustration, but now I had better, a, a, a blueprint for making better choices. And I was super intentional about that. I'm kind of that way. If I'm all in on something, I'm going to be all in. So I was very intentional, very disciplined about it. And, uh, and by being intentional about it, I started seeing restoration in my own brokenness and my own anxiety, depression. I started feeling like finding healing in it. And I started finding restoration in my family, our family. Now we've been married 27 years and you know, three amazing kids. They're all married. Two of them went to Bible college. Two of them went to Marine Corps. I got two granddaughters, one in the way. Like we have this amazing family and I found hope again. And ultimately I found purpose uh, through that. And that purpose manifested in like a real deep burden. I believe God put on my heart to share that lesson with others. And that manifested in the founding of, of Mighty Oaks Foundation, you know, and that was 12 years ago. And over the last 12 years of spoken to a half million active duty troops of run that we run a recovery program we do about five to six million dollars a year in programming free for active duty veterans first responders or spouses at five ranches we have around the country uh do this recovery we're doing like 35 camps a year and about a thousand people per year we put through it uh, it's a week-long camp and then we do we have a program on policy to fight and advocate for veterans uh faith-based veterans care in dc i was on the chair i was the chairman of the white house's faith-based coalition in 2018 and 19 and then we have our international program. We go around the world to their allied partners and give those same principles at Mighty Oaks that we help U.S. service members. We help people and our partners around the world. And I've been to Ukraine like 10 times uh, since February helping the Ukrainian troops out there. So that, you know, that's kind of what this all manifested into. It's just paying it forward. Honestly, that, that's all it is for me. Mighty Oaks is just an opportunity to pay forward what you know the second chance that kathy gave me the second chance that god gave me the, the mentorship that steve gave me it's just it's been to pay, pay it forward and we we don't just help veterans we teach them to do the same and really empower them to be able to do the same for others and that's why it's become like it's grown so fast because you know that discipleship process is just replicating and replicating and not just helping people but equipping them to be part of the solution yeah i know uh we were talking about our mutual friend matt who is a seal who he's on the board I guess of yeah but he was he was early on he was even more engaged and involved with Mighty yeah. Oaks and he was the guy that I would call if someone reached out to me that was really having issues uh, and I remember one time you know we were talking and and like just to the and I don't want to say the specifics because I don't know you don't want to break any privacy uh, of anyone but a guy had checked in who was like severely wounded from self-inflicted um, from a self-inflicted situation and you know he was able to take this guy who had tried very hard to kill himself 
and we're, we're able to get this guy kind of back on track and that to me was a real testament to what you guys are doing um, and you know we already talked about Lou like m- my buddy Lou who I was a team three with just you know, just an awesome guy and I know he had some significant struggles and you know just to see his life turn around is just awesome to see um, so yeah the the things that you guys are doing with Mighty Oaks is is just outstanding how long was it before your wife and you got back together like when did you guys get back in this under the same roof yeah so so i'm like yeah i'm pretty radical personality so so i'm like when i made this decision i'm like hey i'll like you don't have to trust me like i'm gonna i'm gonna fix this the same that character that work ethic the discipline you're talking about like i'm gonna fix this like i'll cause the problems i'm gonna fix this so i'll i'll sleep on your back porch but uh but I'm coming home, mm-hmm. and uh, not. Home. I mean, I had an apartment. She had an apartment, but I'm going to where you are. And uh, and she's like, "You're not coming back." And I'm like, "I'll sleep outside." Like I'm, I, I caused the damage to do this. She didn't make me sleep outside, but she let me in on the couch. And and uh, eventually, I worked my way back into our bedroom. But uh, but uh, it was it was probably a year of really like deliberate like work to put our put my marriage back together mm-hmm. uh that, that that first phase and then and then it probably took like five or six years to really heal from from what i'd done but but that that first year was like me making the decision because I'm, I'm pretty prideful like so when i think like hey things are fixed now like like we should do we need to put this behind us that's kind of my mentality i think most men's mentality but for me it was like realizing like i heard her like she's not gonna be entitled to being hurt, lashing out, throwing things back in my face. Like I had to make the decision that I was gonna allow that to happen because otherwise we would have never been able to get through it because that was, I, I, I'd, go, I'd come home, sometimes she was happy I was home. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she was like, you disgust me, like I don't even want you in the same house as me. Like she was hurt and I hurt her. I did, you know, betrayed her in, a, in the worst way a husband could betray a wife. So I had to, I had to really work through that. And then luckily that mentorship with Steve was like, I'm like, man, like why is she throwing this stuff in my face again that she wanna sabotage us? And he's like, man, like, did you not betray her? Did you not break her trust? Did you not like, uh, you know, does she not have a reason to not trust you? Like uh, all those things were like, yeah, I gotta, so I'm going to have to be the one that just bites the bullet on this and, and let her hurt, let her vent, let her, uh, you know, throw things back in my face until we, until she gets that out of her system and, and earn that trust back. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. Uh, by the way, you got another book called Fight for Us, which I didn't read the whole thing. Normally, I didn't realize about this book until a little late, but uh, uh, but there's a bunch of really good sections in there, so check that book out as well. Um, and that's basically about, well, it says, win back the marriage God intends for you. So this is about you know relationships, but yeah. you've also got a bunch of cool stories in there. Actually, you, you cover your time in the police force. It's a good, re- really good book as well. Meantime, while well, you got this going on, 2011, April sixteenth, you you lose your. I think this is your first fight uh, that you lose it in did. Bellator. Fought Bellator champ Zach Makovsky was the champ at the time, and uh, so you know can't, went right into Bellator fighting the champ. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one wanted to fight Zach at that time, and I was like, heck yeah, I was, you know, let's so, go, let's go. Yeah, man, he's he's an awesome guy. One of you know, at the time, I thought he was one of the best fighters in the world, and and that opportunity to compete. You know, you always if you're a real fighter, you're like you want to against the very yeah. best and uh and I, I had the chance to you stepped against up. him yeah uh you fought again july 22nd you lost in a guillotine first round quick what happened bro i know man <laughs> you know that, that one Dude, did you listen to what i had tim kennedy on the podcast did you listen to that <laughs> no. like it's like i like people pointed out to me i was i'd be like bro you lost i was so hurt that he lost because i'd be rooting for tim so hard like when he was fighting so i know. When lose i'd be like bro what happened man what happened you, you know with zach makovsky it was like 
but people were like, that's your first loss. Like how'd that hurt? I'm like, man, I, I was my best. I wasn't injured. Like that was the, that was the best me. And Zach was better. Like that first loss, it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I was like, I mean, I, I'm a competitor, so I don't want to lose, but I was like, it, it made me, yeah. it's gonna make me step up. Yeah. Right. The next one, the guillotine uh, that eats me and it was still, cu- wasn't it quick? <laughs> it was quick. So I, I went out kind of lax. I usually like come out pretty aggressive mm-hmm. and I went out kind of laxed and he, he rushed me. Uh, and he's like 15 and two, he's a good record, but I, I feel like I should have beat him like 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he rushed me and I, I went back against the fence and I fell and, uh, and I like thought that I couldn't get need or anything. So I reached for his legs and he need me, but not with a knee with a quad. So it was legal. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it, and I woke up in a guillotine. Uh-huh. I got, I guess I got up and I did two, I did two singles, put him down with two singles and on the second single. The first one he came back up, the second single I did, I didn't remember doing it. I was like a, out, but it, it's muscle memory, man. You just. Oh, so you were on the ground and he need you, but he luckily for him hit you with his thigh and not his knee. And yeah. so they've declared it legal. Yeah. And I, that, but he probably meant to, meant to do it that way. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, but I woke up in a gill. I remember waking up dreaming I was drowning. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's, uh, and I was like, what happened, man? I couldn't believe I lost that fight. And I, and I had like all the Brook Army Medical Center brought like the whole wounded warrior uh, unit there. They had all these guys there, like in wheelchairs and from the burn unit. Uh, and they were all there. Man. And I like, uh, it, it, it hurt. It stung. Uh, <laughs> um, you yeah. did win again, May 2012. You win Legacy FC. Um, North South choke round one. Yeah. That was a UFC vet, Joe Sandoval. It's no, like, uh, yeah, a good like, win. Yeah. Uh, what I think was your last pro fight was 2013, October 26th, World Series of Fighting, and you won again with a north-south choke. Yeah, that's my choke. That's your choke. I, we we <laughs> need to do choke. a private, and you can give me your I, details. I, I, I tried to get Jeff with it. Uh, Jeff Real, your guy. Oh, Jeff but Real. You were coaching against it. I, I, I couldn't get it on him. It's messed my choke, and I was trying to get it on him, and I couldn't get it on him. Oh, yes, that's good. good I get everyone with it, and he... And I get everyone with it, and, uh, and I was in a position for it, and he escaped. Oh, Jeff's a Jeff's a freaking scrappy kid, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. who won that? I, I did. Did you yeah. Did you win by points or judge's yeah, decision, points, or whatever? Judge's decision, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's one of those ones where they hold up the flags at the yeah, end. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Was that fight yeah. to win? Fight uh, to win, yeah, something like that. Yeah, what year was that? Oh gosh, I don't know, like five, six years ago, Check. seven years ago. Yeah. Um, now during this time, you're you're doing Mighty Oaks, your uh, you know, you're obviously still fighting. You and and with Aziz, you're kind of keeping intermittent calms with him yeah. because you know all the stuff's classified, and you're just not wide open talking to him. Your son's going to Marine Corps. Yep. Um, which is awesome. How'd you feel about that? Man, I was I was super pumped uh, because you know. My, my oldest son Hunter always wanted to be a Marine, and then the family footsteps. You know, he wants to work at Mighty Oaks one day, so he's going to Bible College, and then he's like, "I want to go to the Marine Corps." He he wants to be a recon Marine, and I, I talked to him because he's like, I "Also want to be a husband and a dad." I'm like, you "Probably shouldn't pick being a recon Marine." And so I I, I, I kind of like did, sat down with him and figured out what he liked most, and he was super interested in aircraft, so I t- showed him about Anglico, which is like oh, a, the JTAC little small four man teams that go in bed with foreign nationals, and he loves working with other countries. So I thought, man, you could get to work with all the different foreign militaries, get to call for fire, uh, call in air support. So that's what he did. And he ended up uh, deploying to Afghanistan with the, with the Georgians, with the Georgian, he was embedded with the Georgian infantry. Check. And so he got to actually, even in 2018, he got to actually go in and do kinetic, kinetic operations, call in fire support. So. And then what about your other son? He went in to be a, uh, he went in to be crash fire rescue. Oh, so he had always wanted to be a firefighter. My wife's Family's firefighters. There you go. And uh, so he did a little merger of both. 
and he actually got out with the vax. He did not want to get the vax, uh-huh. and uh, and, I, and I supported him. He was he was kind of worried that our family would end eighty four years of service with that, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, hey man, like, uh, I, if you're doing it for the right reasons and that's your convictions, like I'm gonna I got your back. And and, and what about now? Are they gonna let him back in or they're whatever? At, they're asking him to come back in now. Oh yeah. So his his was called a other than honorable discharge. Uh, oh come on. Uh, for a commission of a serious offense. And uh, but he he That's we, ridiculous. we had like some serious like consultation. You're down in Houston. We're in Houston, yeah. Is that Dan Crenshaw's freaking district? It is, yeah. <laughs> give give Dan a call, man. Yeah. That's totally yeah. ridiculous. It is. The, the, other than honorable, other than come honorable, on, yeah, yeah. And he he was like honor grad at a boot camp. Like I mean uh, I mean well, he squad leader at boot camp, honor grad at his MLS school. Like he he uh, he Jeez. he did. He, he's like he was you know, and he was about to get meritorious promote corporal and. And they were like, then the vax came up. So, so he did a he did the religious exemption, and then they did the appeal, and then the appeal to the commandant, and then when he went to do the appeal to the sec, sec Navy, uh, secretary of navy, they wouldn't send it up, and uh, so he filed like the whistleblower mm-hmm. thing and and, uh, and reported a commission uh, reported uh, unlawful order because of some of the, the details about the vax was, you know, a lot of people would agree as an unlawful order. And so that was the kind of end of it for him and they discharged him. Well. But he'll probably go back in. Good. Yeah, I think he's gonna go back into reserves. Good yeah, for him. Finish. Um, so you're doing all this stuff, and like I said, your, your communications with Aziz relatively, you know, intermittent at the time. Um, and Again, you got a bunch of details about all this lessons that you learned along the way, you know, in both these books. And you have another book too, which I got the Kindle version of. I don't have, and, and that one's called Never Unfair Advantage. Yeah. Um, that's really, really cool. Kind of focused on your on your work in in uh, special operations. Um, but I'm going to fast forward now. It's summer of 2021. Um, Biden has already announced that uh, you know America is going to leave on this date. Regardless of what the circumstances are, that's when we're leaving. Things are going. Things are going south. They're going south quick. Um, I'm going to go here to. This is chapter five of the book, and and it's it's the name of the chapter is is who surrendered to the Taliban. So here we go. Based on reports I heard from contacts in Afghanistan, the Taliban seemed emboldened following the United States not date not terms announcement. The Taliban was starting to sweep its way across the country with Kabul, its winner-take-all target. Although we were still committed to the SIV process, and that's that's a special immigrant visa for Aziz's family. And again, I fast forward through a bunch of stuff. You've had stuff you've already done. You're working to get him out. You're you're making connections. You're trying to make it happen. I'm fast forwarding past that stuff. Uh, the situation on the ground was more severe than we were hearing back in the states. I called Congresswoman Vitsi, Vicky Hartzler a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Missouri and a wonderful woman and leader. We had worked together through Mighty Oaks Foundation on policy related to faith-based solutions for veteran care. I informed Representative Hartzler of the incredible service Aziz had provided for our country and that although he had reapplied for the SIV status on July 1st, 2021, he could not get into the U.S. Embassy in Kabul because of the COVID-19 restrictions. We have to help this guy, she told me. Representative Hartzler committed to doing what she could to push along his application. Although I trusted her, I had no faith in the actual SIV process. I knew I needed to go into Afghanistan and bring Aziz and his family out. My teammate Andy and I had already been discussing possible options for saving Aziz. At the end of one of our phone calls, I said I wanted to move forward. Andy immediately said he was on board. 
fast forward a little bit here. I pitched to the propose. I pitched the proposal to Richie McGinnis, a journalist with the Daily Caller, who had interviewed me for many stories about Mighty Oaks and veteran issues. I'd enjoyed working with McGinnis. I respected him, and like me, he loves a little adventure. I descri- described for McGinnis how his organization would be our cover by saying they were working on a story out of Afghanistan regarding the withdrawal. They would hire me as their consultant, Andy as head of security, and Aziz as a local culture expert. After getting what we needed in Afghanistan for our piece, we would fly by private jet to Dubai for completion of the production work, but we would need Aziz and his family to accompany us to be interviewed for their story. Then Aziz and his family would remain in Dubai and, of course, never return to Afghanistan. McGinnis was all in for both the story and to get Aziz out, and his bosses at the Daily Caller granted our plan an enthusiastic green light. I crunched the numbers and estimated our operation would cost $65,000. I believe God has an impeccable timing on how he orchestrates events. That same day, I received a call from Wayne Hughes Jr., a dependable friend, advisor, and longtime generous supporter of Mighty Oaks. Wayne had read an article about a special Army Special Forces guy who wanted to get his interpreter out of Afghanistan. Do you know this guy, Wayne asked. I want to help with this Afghanistan thing and I'm thinking about giving to this. I don't know him, I told Wayne, but I'm actually wanting to do the same thing for my interpreter. I was literally planning as you called. Why didn't you tell me, he asked. I explained how I appreciated everything he had done for our foundation over the years and didn't want to ask for anything more. How much do you need, he asked. About $65,000, I replied. Wayne responded without hesitating, done. So that's like your initial plan. That's the initial plan, yeah. Pretty good plan. It was, yeah. I thought it was good. And uh, man, Richard McGinnis was, uh, he was, un- all that stuff you seen on Fox, like undercover with Antifa and BLM, mm-hmm. that he was under, he was a, he was uh, embedded with them and he's like you know, a pretty cool guy. And I was like, man, he'd, he'd be down for this. And mm-hmm. they, talked to, they talked to Tucker and everybody was like, yeah, that sounds like a great way for us to get a story. Whatever they do, they do. Like mm-hmm. whatever we did, you yep. know, but they're like, it's a great way for them to get a story. And, uh, um, then, I mean, things just start moving fast. You go here too fast to pull that on August 11th. Off. The media reported that one U.S. official uh, admitted Afghanistan could follow the Taliban within 90 days. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit on August 12th. So that's August 11th. And then on August 12th, and I mean, obviously, we all remember this happening, but it's yeah. interesting when you hear the dates. On August 12th, the Taliban was taking over so quickly, they now face no resistance. The Pentagon announced the deployment of 3,000 U.S. troops immediately to evacuate dip- diplomatic personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Not that a defeat would have been admitted, but sending troops in after declaring the withdrawal of our military had to be the last thing the White House wanted to do. The withdrawal wasn't transpiring as planned. Unfortunately, the mounting problems were so predictable. The following day, Kandahar fell. Next, Mariza uh, Sharif, the capture of Afghanistan's second and third largest cities on con- consecutive days revealed the Taliban's military strength because the ANA still maintained an operating base in Kandahar. The Taliban had to go th- into those places with a militant force intimidating enough to compel resistance fighters to surrender. So this was just a freaking disaster across the board. Um, fast forward a little bit more. Again, you, you give great detail. You have you have very cool perspective that you put in the book because Aziz is there, you're talking to him. So you're yeah. getting his perspective. It's a great way you did that in the book. Uh, you say the results of the White House not having a plan, unfortunately, manifested on the events of Sunday, August 15th, a sad day in the histories both of Afghanistan and the United States. The Taliban took over the capital city of Kabul that day with no resistance. President Ashraf Ghani, I want to do like an entire series of podcasts about this, this 
miserable human being fled the country yeah. hauling possibly close to 170 million dollars with him we later learned and the afghan government collapsed afghan and what's funny about Ghani, you know Ghani was like a, a professor at berkeley i think where he yeah. taught like how to save failing countries he taught this course <laughs> and and you know yeah, he just ridiculous where's um, he at? where's he at now with all that money yeah afghan government collapsed afghans flocked in the thousands to kabul airport looking to escape also that day the american flag flying over the u.s embassy in kabul was lowered and the embassy evacuated you go on to say in in 1975 the u.s military pulled out of the vietnam war but the diplomats contractors cia employees and marine guards remained behind when the north vietnamese took over south vietnamese capital of saigon a hurried mass evacuation of americans began the final American Saigon were first forced to evacuate via helicopters landing in the embassy's parking lot and on the roof the word humiliating is often used to describe that moment in US history five weeks before we evacuated our Kabul in embassy President Biden had assured Americans there would be no such repeat of history there's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of the embassy of the United States from Afghanistan he said Obviously, we all saw those pictures. Kabul was Saigon all over again. Contacts on the ground were telling me that the Taliban had surrounded our embassy and weren't allowing personnel out. Embassy workers could not get into a car and drive four miles to the airport. They had to be flown out via helicopter. How we left the embassy proved the Taliban was calling the shots, and they knew it. We did not hand over the embassy to the Taliban. No diplomacy was involved. Helicopters flying off the roof is not a peaceful transition. That's a retreat. The Taliban took our embassy from us. August 15th was a day of defeats. The Afghans lost their country to the Taliban. For Americans, our military did not suffer defeat. But the U.S. government, with blood on its hands, lost to the Taliban. (sighs) Yeah. Freaking ridiculous. Yeah, I think one of the biggest lies the american people were given with afghanistan was that we were in this 20-year war this endless war that we had to leave and i think one of the things president trump could have did in 2018 was declared the war over and shifted to it and announced to support an advisory role because that's what actually happened so in 2018 and most most americans don't understand this but we we were we moved to support an advisory role of the afghan national army and afghan national police and the international community all participated and we, were, we did it at bagram air force base which is the most strategic place in the globe right now between iraq iran russia and china and uh and and it was working we were supporting and, yeah. and lifting up the afghan national army to keep the taliban at bay and keep terrorism where it belongs in the mountains of afghanistan and not here and out and not become a global threat or, or national security threat so like this push to withdraw from afghanistan was uh, just a lie. I mean, it's not even consistent with our traditional like military strategy. Uh, we've we have eighty thousand troops still in Japan since World War Two, and forty thousand in Germany, thirty five thousand in South Korea. We had twenty five hundred troops at one point in Afghanistan. Why would we want to give up that base? And 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 in doing so, we didn't even talk to NATO. We didn't talk to the Afghan government. We put in place. We talked to the Taliban, our enemy of twenty years. Uh, that we did this Doha agreement, which the Doha agreement basically says that they won't allow terrorism. They are terrorists. And uh, we've seen right away they're, you know, they're starting to execute people day one yep. of the, as they're coming out of Pakistan. They're, I mean, it, it, was, it was just insane to me. Yeah. Um, it, when, when you're going to support a country 
that's trying to change the way the, that, that they've lived. You, you, it takes generations to do that. And right. you pointed out to three examples, right? Korea, Germany, Japan. You, it takes generations to get them to be stable on their own, and that's what it takes. But we weren't fighting a war anymore no. in Afghanistan. The war that we had been fighting was over. Was over. You know, we hadn't taken casualties. I think we hadn't taken a casualty in eighteen months, something right. like that. So, th- those the, the war was over. And twenty five hundred troops. We have that. All, I can oh, yeah. name ten places right now: Djibouti, Africa, oh, yeah. Syria, they're all Iraq. The they're all over the world. That's not a lot of troops. Uh, and you know, so the idea that we don't want to stay in sustained wars. That, these contingent forces prevent prevent wars. It, it brings stability in regions. And so for us to give up, I mean, now we're looking at potential war with China without even a strategic location like Bagram there. China China actually is who's occupying that base now, yep. not, not the Taliban. So. Ridiculous. Um, f- fast forward a little bit in the book. As rapidly as the situation in Afghanistan was spiraling out of control, an effort to save Aziz was coming together in equally stunning fashion so quickly that it could be only described as God thing orchestrated in a divine way that I could not explain. Andy, give us a brief on who Andy is. Yeah, well, Andy is like a longtime friend. He was uh, he was on that first JSOC task force with me and uh, just a lot of experience. And uh, he's the one actually recruited uh, Aziz in the first place to bring him on with us. Got it. So you're yeah. working with him again. And you say, Andy and I started connecting with our network of operators who might be interested in going into Afghanistan with us. We specifically wanted guys who had deployed to Afghanistan, were from the special operations community, had real world soft experience, and most importantly, had a heart to rescue vulnerable people instead of look to get in a fight with the Taliban to sow their war lust oats. We ended up quickly assembling a core group of operators who were highly experienced, trusted, and rightly motivated. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a big thing that we were looking for. Is like, I didn't want anyone to go there like to go get some. Right. right? That's like this isn't the place for that. You had twenty years to do that. Like right yep. now, we're going uh, not to be combatants, and uh, that was very important to pick mature guys. And so we had some. Uh, we had uh, you know a couple of SF guys, recon guys, uh, some guys from uh, from Ground Branch uh, that were that were able to be part of our team and a very experienced group of guys uh, all had that same kind of passion and motivation that we had just to go do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I call it, we, we all have, like pretty strong people of faith. I think everybody, we call the task force six, eight from diverse Isaiah six, eight here, yeah. my send me. And that's what we called it. And, uh, and you know, it was all originally all just to go get his ease and his wife and kids, but it changed obviously. <laughs> you uh, talk about, a key person and not just the operators, but you say God started bringing groups of like-minded people together and we began consolidating our efforts. One such person was Sarah Verardo, Sarah Verardo, whom I met through the Mighty Oaks. Sarah's husband, Michael, was catastrophically wounded by two separate IED attacks in Afghanistan in 2010. The blasts took Michael's left leg and much of his left arm. He has endured more than 100 surgeries plus years of speech, visual, physical, and occupational therapies for his body and traumatic brain injury. Sarah became a champion for wounded veterans and their caregivers through volunteering with the Independence Fund. She eventually became the fund's first CEO. In addition to the direct help the Independence Fund provides wounded veterans and their families. Sarah has become an effective influencer in Washington, D.C. of national policies related to military and veteran causes. As I worked parallel efforts in D.C. through Mighty Oaks, Sarah and I joined forces over the past four years to impact veterans' health care policy. And uh, you know, so she plays a huge role in this. Huge. I mean, she's, she's very sharp. She's very connected. And obviously, she has a... A very personal vested interest in, yep. in Afghanistan. I mean, her, you know, she, you know, pretty much lost her husband 
uh, you know, or lost, you know, who he was when they got married. And she's like his caretaker now. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, so she was very, uh, you know, was very passionate about this. And so she was one of the first people that I, that I connected with in this because I knew she had the ability to move the needle and making things happen. Access is important. Uh, especially when you're in a DOD controlled evacuation. Yep. So access is important. So I knew she could help with that. Other guys, you know, Tim Kennedy, Nick mm-hmm. Palmachano, uh, guys I can't mention their names. Uh, I mentioned Joe Roberts' name. Uh, but some, some re- really uh, incredible group of guys. And, you know, as we're putting this together, uh, one of the guys picks up his phone and puts it down and is like, uh, hey, this, uh, there's these 3,500 orphans. And they just got left. Because people are surviving, like they're, the thirty-five provinces fall, people are surviving. So, like these kids just got left. Like, uh, you know, a- Andy and this guy Sean were like, "We need to go get these orphans," and that's kind of shifted from, "Let's get as easy as wife and kids," but let's get as many Americans, interpreters, their families, women, children that'll be persecuted, Christians that'll be persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. We have like this incredible group of, of people. We're all willing to do it. Let's just go all in, and uh, and that's what I said. You know, we, we've got a lot of credit, like we got recognized on the House floor. We got I got that Bonhoeffer Achievement Award. Like we got all these things, but the truthfully, like the only thing I feel like I could take credit for is that we were just we had that burden of we've got put in our heart, and we said yes. And beyond that, like I'm not smart enough or capable enough to pull off what happened because it was like it was literally like some things happen, and like that's why I said the only way I know to describe it is like a divine miracle because if any one of those things didn't happen. The way they happened in the sequence of events, it would the whole thing would have been fall apart. And the first was Sarah calling uh, the Joint Chiefs and getting permission for us to be able to go in a DOD-controlled HKIA airport, Hermit Carter International Airport, as civilians to possibly land like commercial aircraft or foreign military aircraft and go outside the wire to rescue people. Like that's like a, I mean, you're an officer. That's like a no. That's like, like a, that's like a yeah, that's a no. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but, but in a miraculous turn of events, they said yes. And then we had to figure out how to get people. These are visa applicants now. Like, so they said yes, but we have to be able to give our manifest to the joint chiefs. They have to approve. So we have to be very diligent on who we're getting, how we're getting them, have a bona fides process to prove rapidly who they are. And then we have to be able to move people that are visa applicants across the border of another country. We can't bring them to the United States because we're not the State Department. So we have to find somewhere to take them because that's human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And the only place you could do that is like Laredo, Texas, I think. But <laughs> outside, outside of that, in the real world, you have to follow rules. And so we called the the royal family we had some people that knew the royal family of the united arab emirates and we asked for permission they I, we were on this phone call for like an hour and i thought man he's there no one's saying anything i'm like they're just rolling their eyes like these idiots like but at the end of that phone call they were like we'll roll out the red carpet we bring them here we have a humanitarian center we have doctors food facilities we're going to take care of just get them here and uh, and it said if you need an aircraft we'll give you a c-17 plane the large military aircraft with pilots and if you fill that one up we'll give you a second one and then the third thing that happened was Glenn Beck, radio show host, a uh, friend of mine, Glenn Beck called and he said, Chad, I just got on the radio to raise money. I thought I could raise a few thousand dollars because I just wanted to do something. So he got behind his microphone. He said in three days I raised $21 million. Overall, he raised $46 million. He's like, what do I, well, I don't have an operation. So I said, start chartering planes. And so Mercury One's his nonprofit. They partnered with us at Mighty Oaks and they started chartering a guy named Rudy Atala, who's a veteran, amazing dude, started chartering planes for us. And so all that came together in like three days to, to launch this operation. Yeah, it's freaking it's it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's a crazy amount of stuff, and you got great, you got stuff about the team in here. You know, you got Andy, um, you got Tim Kennedy. You know, 
what did you say about Tim? Uh, member of U.S. Army Special Forces, Green Bray sniper, top ten UFC fighter, well-known TV <laughs> personality from History Channel's hunt, <laughs> Hunting History History uh, series and Discovery's Hard to Kill, and a guy just crazy enough to try anything once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you say the main reason I reached out to Tim because he's a, tr- a trust quote uh, friend and a legit operator. Beyond Tim's celebrity profile, his extensive training and real-world yeah. experience in soft operations. He's not a has-been. He is still that guy and currently serves as Special Forces uh, Operations Sergeant with the 20th Special Force Group. Tim's like, I don't know how, I don't know how Tim does what Tim does. It's he gets you. a lot of heat for like being like, people go after him, but man, if people don't realize he's like, he's legit like oh, operator. Oh, absolutely, man. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, like you said, you got Nick Palm, Palmichano. Um, uh, he's another guy that's a stud, you know. He's a Ranger, West Point guy. Um, Super smart. Yeah, I mean, you just put together this guy, Sea Spray. Sea Spray was the kingpin of a lot of this, and what we did, some of the stuff in Ukraine. Highly intelligent guy, Green Beret. You know, you served with you know the, the premier mm-hmm. like special operations uh, in, in in the intel side. He's he he lost thirty seven pounds in the ten days we were on the ground doing everything. He did not stop. Like he didn't eat, didn't stop. He just like kept going out and getting people. It was a, he's a, he's an incre- incredible human being. Yeah, and then your son Hunter. Yeah, you know, so he's What's like, he's, this? well, he's like, he's like, Dad, I'm, I'm going, I'm getting ready, and he's like, well, I'm like, what are you talking? about? go to your room. Like, like he's like, he's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a man now. I have a beard. Like, I, I've been in Afghanistan. Like, I had an interpreter too. Like, I want to be part of this. And I'm like, and so I just kind of thought for a second, like, man, like, how horrible would it be for me to like take that away from him? You know, and uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want him involved in this because I'm his dad. I want to protect him. But how horrible would that be to take that away from him and me have to face that? No, I took that away from him for the rest of his life. So, so uh, you know, he ended up in uh, Abu Dhabi. Really, just doing. He's a, he's a super smart, you know, kid, and he's he's like, he just really organizes things really well. So he was like, and he kind of earned his place there in Abu Dhabi, and then and then ultimately he wanted to come on the, the river operation with me, but we didn't let him do that. But but now he's like in Ukraine, like he's leading operations in Ukraine. He's he's. Pretty smart. So. You got it going on. Yeah. Uh, he's a black belt, too. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> he's definitely that got it going on. <laughs> um, fast forward a little bit. Again, get the book, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. After Kabul fell, the first part of our task force 6 8, which you already talked about, that's from Isaiah 6 8. Uh, here I am, send me. Um, team headed overseas to set up a jock in the UAE. And again, the UAE been, you know, the their. They're, they're fighting terrorists in the UAE. The yes. UAE is staunch allies of America. Um, so it doesn't actually surprise me that they were ready to support. I remained in the United States for a few more days to continue working on operations logistics for when the team arrived in Afghanistan and to work with Sarah setting up the system for the flood of requests coming at us because that's another thing that's going on. And you talk about it in the book, like now all of a sudden everybody knows that you're going to get people out. Everyone's putting in requests to you. Uh, Sarah worked the DC angles taking responsibility for coordinating with government officials to ensure we did everything legally We were carrying out a moral cause rescuing rescuing our fellow man, and we knew we had to precisely follow the law Uh, You go on here as of Friday August 20th We estimated a hundred thousand Americans and allies needed to be brought out of Afghanistan the next day Sean Seaspray and Dave flew from Abu Dhabi into Kabul as our first boots on the ground Tim and Nick would fly later into the UAE with Hunter and me, and then Tim and Nick would travel on to Afghanistan. Once we had everyone in place, Andy, Joe, Hunter, and I, along with others, would work operations and coordinate rescues from the jock in Abu Dhabi. Sean Seaspray and Tim would be our three-man rescue team working outside the airport while Dave remained inside Hikaya 
in uh, to coordinate with the military. Nick would spend one day helping Dave and then return to UAE to work with us. So, dude, this is like an incredible logistic freaking effort. Oh, it's like and it was like insane. so fast, and it was like, yeah, yeah, all and it, like I said, if any one of those things. If you apart. were to, if you were to say, hey, listen, I want you to evacuate uh, fifty thousand people from a country. How long do you need to plan and execute this? You'd be like, I need six months. Yeah. Adam, that's if you were good. Yeah. You'd be like, look, I need six months. So the fact that you're doing this shit in three, whatever it is, four days, something like this, six days, is absolutely freaking awesome. Um, yeah, it's just everybody just coming together. Uh, it, it was one of those moments. There's always a little bit of ego everywhere. It was one of those moments that everybody put all that aside and just work together to do the right thing. And, and everyone knew there's no time for that. There was no time to like for posturing and positioning. Yeah. It was just like, let's just yeah. lock arms and do it. That was rad when we had Tim to, on talking about this. Like, you know, Tim is just such a good, yeah. such a good dude, but yeah. he's like, yeah, I'm glad this happened when he, he, you know, he's glad it happened when he was whatever, however old he is now, 37 yeah. or 41 or whatever he is. He's like, because he just was like, okay, what do we need to get done? Whereas yeah. if he, you know, if he was young, if he was being young Tim, yeah. which young Tim had to be a handful. We laughed a bunch about what <laughs> yeah. a handful Tim, yeah, young yeah. Tim was. Um, but yeah, just the the fact that it wasn't just him, but everyone on the team have all these badass experienced people and they're all like, what do we need to get done? No egos, let's rock and roll. That's 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 what made it happen. That's yeah, what made it absolutely. happen. Absolutely. It was, it, was, it was cool to see Tim that way. You know, I've been knowing Tim for a long time and Tim was just like, like, what do you need carried? Like, what do you need? Like, he he was like, where do you need me? And uh, and and honestly, it was like, we need you on a ground team. And he was like, he wasn't going like seeking. And he, everybody was giving him a hard time for that. Like, he was just like, where do you need me? And and he was just there to help. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and by the way, like, he didn't need to do any of that. He's like, he's a pretty successful dude. Yeah, right yeah, now. yeah. He didn't yeah. need to prove anything. He's yeah. got the, he's got the profile. He's got the bio. Like, he's got a successful. He didn't need to do any of for that. Sure. He just want he just wanted to help. Just trying to help out. Yeah. Um. And and for me, like. One of the other benefits for me is that I know when I was putting this together, like this is going to cost a lot of money and I have to raise it fast. And, uh, you know, I already have like Mighty Oaks. I have to raise $6 million a year, like, um, to, for Mighty Oaks. Like I need somebody else that could help be in the PR side. And so Tim wore that yeah, hat too. True. Yeah. And damn, Glenn Beck raised what? 26 million? 46 total, uh, 21 God. in like three days. And those, but those flights, like a lot of people don't realize, those flights were like eight hundred thousand dollars a piece. You know, props to uh, obviously to Glenn Beck. That's awesome. Also to the American people that are like, oh, I can afford to give a little bit to help these yeah. citizens out, help that's, these allies out. That's why, like, I keep saying as I talk about this, like, th th so there was a time we were in we were in Abu Dhabi, and uh, it was I was really perplexed by this because they had helped us rescue, uh, get some Americans out, right? And so I I was in this room and we were a couple of us were in there there was the minister of interior there was uh five generals there was uh 20 something lawyers and uh and a couple of royal family members and i had to thank them uh rightfully for helping us get these american americans out when our government wouldn't and then i also had to apologize for our government which i'm a pretty pa proud patriotic dude so for me to apologize for our government was like something hard but uh but as i walked out i, I remember walking out just feeling ashamed and uh, and then i thought for a second like you know what I'm, I'm ashamed of our of our government but i probably never have been more proud of of, of being an american yeah. because when the government when our government did not do the right thing good people stood up and just did it and i don't mean just the 12 of us that went to do the rescues i mean like 
the thousands of people who donated, mm -hmm. uh, the, the people who just, there was people that, that don't like me, that follow me on social media because they don't like maybe my conservative patriotic views. And they, so there were people that, that were following me that were writing me like, hey, I don't like you, but what you're doing is awesome. Where can I support? Like, like you know, people like that. And there was a Jewish organization that went to donate, uh, write about in the book, they went, went to donate uh, $1.5 million for two flights, a $700,000 flight, $800,000 flight. And they were going to donate in Mighty Oaks, you know, we're a Christian organization. So they went to make the donation and they called me up and they said, hey, we can't make the donation. I was like, did I give you the routing number wrong? Like, like, no, you're a Christian organization. We're a Jewish organization. We can't make that transaction. And I said, man, you, okay, but you realize we're rescuing Muslims, right? <laughs> like, and they were like, the guy like laughed and he was like, okay, let's do it. And then yeah. we made the donation. It was like a really cool moment to see just people from all walks of life just come together and do the right thing for the fellow human and it was it was it was pretty cool and you know and again the government our government didn't do the right thing but but people did yeah it was it was cool man um get a little picture on the ground here i'm gonna fast forward a little bit um you you, you got the at this point where i'm fast forwarding to the taliban basically has external perimeter of H. Kaya. So they're they're around the airport. They definitely control the outer perimeter. They control the outer perimeter. Um, we barely control the inner perimeter. Uh, and you say, I've flown in and out of H. Kaya many times. The international airport is on the northeast edge of Kabul and densely populated residential areas are to its southwest and northwest, but there are also a bit of a buffer of open terrain around much of the airport. The Taliban could not stand shoulder to shoulder to secure the airport perimeter because it was far too large of a landmass. Imagine the a major airport where you live. You could cover access points and observe open areas, but the perimeter would be porous. The best way to locate the checkpoints was good old-fashioned walking and looking with the Taliban executing people trying to escape. The worst scenario would be for our rescue team to start smuggling people through an airport gate believed to be secure and then have the group compromised by the Taliban. So you got people trying to recon, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, I got to fast forward again, but... Here we go. I had to do so. You're you're communicating with Aziz, and you say I had to do a lot of convincing for Aziz to make his eighth and he said final attempt to reach the airport. So he's tried a bunch of times to get through. There's checkpoints everywhere. Um, he's getting shot at. He's got a Mosh seven years old or six years old at the time. His wife has a, a wound, uh, infected appendix wound from surgery. Like it's. So he's got all that going on. Uh, you say because of the Taliban checkpoint, the zero zero's presence, the massive crowds, the first seven attempts had failed. Aziz had lost hope on the seventh. At night, I coordinated with Sean, who was waiting for the family at a gate when Aziz called and said they were turning around. He was covering seven-year-old Mashkarala's ears while talking to me, and I heard shooting in the background. I'd heard shooting on the previous call, too. I just need you to go for it, I pleaded with Aziz. With Bashir and his Taliban thugs looking for Aziz and his family, and again, the backstory on a lot of this stuff is in the book. Um, Bashir, obviously a bad guy. Um, I believed it was more dangerous for them to turn back, but Aziz also knew the accounts of what the Taliban were doing around the airport. They were beating people, they were shooting them to death, they were cutting off heads and arms, they were tying a rope around people's necks and dragging them behind cars through the streets. I can't, brother, he said. Mashkarala is scared, I've gotta go back. Aziz didn't believe his children, especially the youngest ones, could take hearing more of the gunshots the Taliban were firing into the air to scare people or worse. They'd witnessed the Taliban strike people to the ground with the stocks of their guns. They'd been pushed and shoved within thousands of people outside the airport. Afghans 
had heard on the news, as he said, that the United States said it would accept anyone who worked for its government and also anyone who'd not worked for them. As Aziz put it, the people thought the door to paradise was open and being the closest to the airport gates was the only chance to get in. Man, what a disaster. Aziz made attempts during the night and day by different routes and entrances, but nothing had he had tried worked. After the seventh attempt, he said the airport was too dangerous to try again, so he would try and come up with a way to leave by foot into a bordering country. I didn't think Aziz could make it out of Kabul alive. He had already been turned back at two Taliban checkpoints, and I didn't like his chances of avoiding being recognized a third time or being found by Bashir. I asked him to go to H. Kaya one more time. I trust you, brother, he said. I'll try one more time. So you're just like begging him to try and get there. Yeah, I remember telling him like, bro, you've done, I've, I've seen I've seen you do harder stuff than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you could do it, you, you, like, even if not for you, for your, for your family, like you have to get them out. I was like pulling that, like do it for your family, mm-hmm. like, like muster it up, man. Like, like you, you gotta keep going. And he was like, he said his like legs were so weak that he could barely even stand up. He was, uh, you know, he, he talks about a lot. It's like, if it was just him, you know, he, he would throw guns in the back of his truck, went to the mountains yeah. and resisted, but he's got, he's got his kids, he's got his yeah. wife. And I mean, there's one moment, I, I, some of the stuff's not in the book, but he was like at his house, like putting guns and, and grenades in places and saying, okay, if they come from this way, he's got his wife here, he's got his daughter here, he's got his son here, like covering all their acts. His family left, everyone left him. So like his family like wanted to disassociate with him. So he's like by himself and, and um, you know, so he's like pretty desperate body. He's just draining every day, you know, that the energy is draining out of him. He just uh, just kept having to, you know, to try to keep him motivated. Try yeah. one more time. Yeah, and it's one thing to risk your own life, which you can do pretty easily. But when you're risking not just your life, but your white life of your wife and children, yeah, that's a different. And he's he's got this stuff playing through his head. He knows what's gonna happen. They're gonna like rape his daughters, and you know, and he's gonna they're gonna you know torture his family in front of him. Like he's, you know, he knows what he's facing. It's not just like being killed. Yeah. That's that that kind of that's that weight I felt back you know back in 2007 with. When I was dealing with the stuff I was dealing with, I wasn't worried about getting killed. I was worried about being in the bottom of the basement and my feet smashed in with sledgehammers. Like, those are the kind of things that really, you know, get you. And that's what he was worried about. Yeah, and it's real easy to sit here and, um, you know, be distant from this stuff. Uh, look, you oh, you saw it on the TV. You saw someone getting, you know, they're getting shot, getting executed. You're, on, you're watching it on TV, you know, or you read about it. Like, they, this is a real thing that they are watching, they've seen it, they know what's happening. Well, they're, they're seeing this bodies everywhere, yeah. people trampled, people shot. Uh, they were taking babies, like, in, what, what, the level of desperation wasn't just people climbing on airplanes. And like, imagine a mom, like taking her baby and knowing that this baby is gonna either become a sexual slave, because it's a girl, or it's gonna become pushing into madrasas and become a Taliban, you know, evil, evil terrorists because of uh, the Taliban takeover. So now your baby's only chance is to get it over that wall of the airport. So these moms are kissing their baby goodbye, putting it on top of a crowd of thousands of people to be crowd surfed to that wall. And whoever at the end of that, it got to somebody would grab that baby and throw it as hard and high as they could to get over that wall and a chance for survival. That's like the level of desperation. What they didn't know was on the other side of that wall was six feet high and 20 feet deep of Constantino wire. My buddy Joe counted six babies that had bled out in that, in that wire. Uh, Cause you know, when Constantino wires crimped, you can't really uncrimp it. So babies are uh, in there and it's, it's just, that, that's the level of desperation. So he's trying to get his family through that. 
and uh, you know, people with Taliban shooting. He, was, he got shot at by the Taliban. He got shot at by the double zero units. The Marine shot at him because he's like, you know, Chad Roby show. Like, he's look him up on Google, and you're like, get the hell out of here, man. Like, <laughs> we don't know Chad Roby show. Like, and the Marines are shooting at him. <laughs> yeah, um, going back to the book here, you say I messaged Sean and got on a call with him to tell him Aziz was in a different location and that Aziz would not be able to stay there long enough for Sean to get him. Sean called Inside H. Kaya to the senior enlisted leader of a U.S. Special Operations Team, Master Sergeant H.Y., who had been helping us. Sean briefed him on Aziz and H.Y. agreed to go to the North Gate and meet Aziz and bring him inside. We linked everyone up through WhatsApp and H.Y. told Aziz that he and his team were on their way to meet them outside the airport. The area was relatively calm, allowing Aziz to wait there. He spotted a a small pararescue team exit the North Gate across the road from where he was standing about 50 yards away, but they were wearing body armor and helmets and Aziz couldn't recognize if it was HY's group. Aziz climbed onto a large shaky rock and while trying not to shift his weight too much and flip the rock over, he yelled, HY, HY, this is Aziz, but HY didn't hear Aziz. Then Aziz saw a teammate next to HY get his attention and point toward Aziz. By now, Aziz had raised the awareness of zero zeros and Marines securing the gate. The zero zeros pushed Aziz trying to get him to back away from the area. A few Marines came over and shooed Aziz away. Aziz tried to show them his documents. I'm your ally, he told me. I work for you guys. I put my life on the line. I work for Chad. Do you know Chad Robichaux? I don't know him, one of the Marines said. Get away. <laughs> Someone from one of the groups fired a warning shot in Aziz's direction. Then HY yelled across the street, that's my guy, don't shoot him. Come over here, H.Y. shouted to Aziz. Aziz sprinted across the road and embraced H.Y. My family's over he- over there, Aziz said, pointing to the open area in the distance. I was not able to bring them. It's very difficult to get here. I need your help. Please tell the Marines and the other guys to let me bring them my family. The warning shot had brought attention to that area. More zero zeros came rushing in, and zero zeros are security force from the Afghan government. Um, and they're do- and both them and the Marines are trying to like keep things secured. Yeah. Which you'd think, well, won't they try to help them? No, they're actually trying to keep people away from the airport because there's so many people flooding the airport because of this was such a disaster. Um, some were firing, firing into the air that spread out the crowd that had been stirred up by the first shot. Some were striking people with their guns to try and control them. Amid the growing commotion, HY got the attention of a zero-zero commander. HY and his team had already gone against orders by coming outside the airport gate. Look, this is my guy, HY told him. He needs to bring his family here, walk with him, and escort him all the way through, through your guys. He and his family are very important. Okay, their commander responded. I'll walk with him to that area where our guys are, but I'm not going to walk him over to where the Taliban are. The commander and Aziz started walking toward his friend's car. Please don't leave, Aziz told the commander. These other guys do not know me. They won't let they won't let me come back. The commander accompanied Aziz as far as he said he would, which was about 20 yards from where Aziz's family waited. Aziz feared that if he walked away to get his family, the commander would leave. Aziz called his friend and asked him to drive the car to a spot across from the street from Aziz and the commander. The friend allowed Aziz's instructions. The, the friend followed Aziz's instructions, and Aziz was able to walk to the car while nervously keeping an eye 
on the commander to make sure he didn't leave. Aziz realized that bringing his family together across the street could get would get the Taliban's attention. A family moving together obviously would be trying to get to the airport. Instead, one by one, attempting to blend in with the surroundings so he could not be recognized, Aziz slowly walked all seven members of his family from the car to the commander. The commander then returned with Aziz and his family to where Aziz had met up with HY. HY and the team came back outside the gate in an armored Hilux pickup truck and they hurriedly loaded the family and the two bags they carried with them, containing all the possessions they were hoping to leave their home country with inside the pickup and sped inside the gate. When the Hilux had cleared the last of the various checkpoints maintained by allied militaries, HY snapped the selfie with Aziz and sent the photo up to us. That's when I learned that my brother and his family had finally, finally made it safely into HKIA. There's a part that, uh, that is not in the book that we could say now. Uh, about, uh, about two hours after Aziz got in there, got his family situated. Uh, we had got word that as a, um, a 16-year-old American University student was trapped just outside in a house just outside. The Taliban was trying to find her. She was hiding. She tried to climb the wall and fell, so she was injured, couldn't move. And uh, and we asked Aziz to go back out. I, I didn't ask him, but uh, some of our guys asked Aziz to go back out and uh, and go get her, and he did. Dang, dude. So, <laughs> yeah. I was actually upset when I found that he did. Yeah, I'd be pissed too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, – Damn. But he, but that's just who he is, you know. He was like, and his wife's like, "You're going back out." He's like, "No, no, I'm not going back out." And he went back out and got this girl. It's wild too, like the modern technology that you get a you get a freaking selfie, like yeah. as soon as it happens. Like, yeah, that's okay. just, I was like, like, I remember so seeing crazy. that. I was like, oh my gosh, like just like it was just such a relief because I, you know, as optimistic as I was, I was like, it was really hard to keep hope. Like it was, it was, oh. it, was it was it was crazy. I mean, the whole t- situation was just so crazy. Um, fast forward a little bit. Coordinating rescues from home in real time made me want to be part of the rescues on the ground. From 150 rescues the first day, we jumped to 800 the second day and set a daily goal of 1,000. On the third day, Mon- Monday, August 23rd, Tim, Nick, Hunter, and I departed for the UAE. So you guys, you had done that, all that from the ground in America. Yeah, um, yeah we're, we're, I was putting... I was just yeah, burning, you, burning the keyboard, man, like uh, getting everything together, orchestrating everything. And you know what's weird? What I remember, like this stuff happened so fast. So I, I'm, I, I like go on social media, but I don't like go on it. You yeah, know, I, I like post my stuff or whatever. But I, by the time I realized what you guys were doing, it was over. It was actually over. It was like literally over. By the time I was like, hey, you know, I saw, you know, save our allies. Like somebody tagged me in something or whatever, and it was. I, I'm pretty sure it was actually over by the time I caught wind of what was going on. By That's the, how that first quickly day, it happened. The 10 days, yeah. first 10 days. Yeah. It just like happened so quick. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did the, you know, so I was, the first like few days was you doing it from my house and then I, then I flew over to Abu Dhabi and, uh, and then ran everything from Abu Dhabi and then, uh, and then, you know, that whole 10 day period at the airport and then two two months of Maja Sharif, and then the then Tajikistan River Operation in Afghanistan, Tajikistan. Yeah. So it was just like, yeah, just, no, that, that whole thing I, was about three months. I, I don't know if you tagged me in social media or Tim did or somebody did, and I like reposted it or something. But it, you guys were already like working, yeah. and uh, at least I, I can't I can't remember it all. But I just remember going, 
damn, this is because I also remember sorting through. There was a bunch of people that were yeah. kind of like your buddy that said, "Hey, this special forces guy is trying to get some of his friends out." Like, so many people. Yeah, so many people were asking for money. Yeah, and I, 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 I was like trying to figure it all out. And then when I when I found out it was you guys, when I found out it was you and Tim, I was like, oh, "Okay, cool. That's at least a known good group of freaking humans." Um, but yeah, this shit happened quick. Um, fast forward a little bit more. We traveled to Abu Dhabi. And by the way, your job was done too. You know, like you got your friend out, your yeah. job was done, but you were just getting warmed up. We traveled to Abu Dhabi where we were able to grab about an hour's sleep. We woke up and met with Tim, Nick, and Joe to plan out our initial integration and operations there. A flight was bound to rec- uh, about, about to return to HKI in about an hour or two. And since Joe and Andy needed me in the jock, I, it was just going to be Tim and Nick on that flight to join Sean, Seaspray, and Dave. Saying goodbye to Tim and Nick as they departed brought back an old feeling I hadn't experienced in years. The last look you give someone before they go and you know there's a real chance you'll never see them again. I couldn't help but consider they were getting on that plane because I'd asked them to and they trusted me yet I had no control of the environment they were stepping into. Tim usually loud, joking, and always having fun, but his tone was serious. This was real, and our lives would all be in danger, along with those we were about to save, Aziz and many others whom we didn't even know. I looked at Tim and Nick one more time as we walked in opposite directions and prayed to myself, God be with them, blind the enemy, miraculously protect them, and give give us success to save these people. When Tim and Nick arrived, Sean and Seaspray were on their way outside the wire. Within 15 minutes of stepping off the plane, Tim had changed clothes and our three-man team was leaving the airport for the first time together. That night, they set up eight rat lines, including ones that passed through the sewage ditches that received attention on the news reports. The gate the UN accessed had been sealed shut when the UN left the country. Tim cut off a couple of locks and bent and cut some rebar so the gate could be pried open just enough to move people through. The team also made cutouts and fences to pass people through. So there you go, man. The boys on the ground making happen 15 minutes after they get on the ground, they're rolling out. Everything was so fast the whole time. I remember I was uh, my first deployment to Iraq. There was was like a QRF was needed. It was far away. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my buddies, who was my senior enlisted advisor, who is for our task unit, was just like one of my freaking awesome bros and this we were launching this qrf there was a bad situation and we like i what i told my guys was like hey load out full load out everything just ammo there was like a a a a cpa was getting overrun down south so when you're when a position's being overrun and you're going as a qrf like you know it's on but i remember my buddy my buddy had that like look like i'm like all right bro i'm out of here and he like hugged me and i was yeah. like oh shit <laughs> he was yeah, like yeah. this is worse than right. i thought that's that look that's the one when you were yeah. reading that i was like you, you probably know what i'm talking yeah. about like when you just get a look you like man you might <laughs> this might be the last goodbye <laughs> uh, um yeah Fast forward a little. Again, you, you go through such good detail in the book. Most of our operations occurred under cover of darkness, although we were able to move larger groups during the day by bringing them to the airport on buses. As with everyone we brought into the airport, we made triple certain anyone we allowed onto a bus was properly vetted. The U.S. government has been accused of evacuating lucky souls who were in HKI regardless of status. While that may ring true, our efforts were handled with military precision. Our government was adamant that we weren't sticking just anyone on a plane and flying them out of the country. Most NGOs working alongside us did due diligence in vetting people as well. We knew exactly who we were getting out because of the triage process that Sarah oversaw 
in the States. So you guys ran this, um, you know, like a, like a military operation. Yeah. I mean, those, I mean, as you you could suspect on the ground, you know, is, of course, the near four recognition symbols and then the bona fides process to make sure they're, they are who they are before we move them. And then, of course, they're going to bring, they're going to have 10, if you have 10 people, you have another 10 people that, that shouldn't be there. And so you got to sort through, sort through that. Um, fast forward a little bit more. Late afternoon on Thursday, August 26th at 17.50 local time, a V-bid suicide bombing outside Abbey Gate killed 13 U.S. service members and approximately 170 Afghans hoping to be allowed inside the airport. 18 other U.S. military members along with well over another 200 Afghan civilians were severely wounded. When I received word in Abu Dhabi of the attack, my first thought was, are our guys okay? We immediately got in touch with Tim. At the time of the explosion, our ground team had just completed loading evacuees onto a C-17 about a mile away. They had been at Abbey Gate minutes earlier. The cargo ramp was still down on the plane when they heard the blast and a dust plume rose from that area. They could not tell what had happened, but they knew it was bad. They closed the ramp right away and sent off the flight. As the reports came in detailing the number of U.S. service members killed, I got angry. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I mean, anybody that made it in and out of the airport was because the Taliban allowed them to. And the, for the, the White House to immediately say, oh, it's ISIS, not the Taliban. It's like, how <laughs> could you defend the enemy that way to the American public? You know, it's a, you know, we, we allowed that to happen. And we know, you know, the biggest, and I talk about it in the book, the biggest thing is that NEO operation, you know, you, you take the White House took the non-combatant evacuation operation away from the DOD and gave it to the State Department who has no business in doing that. They don't know how to do it. It's not their job to do it. That's what's the difference between military force and diplomacy. And uh, they treated that airport like an embassy and they didn't allow the military to do their job. They would just made them embassy guards. Yeah. And that's, that allowed this to happen. Is it? it uh, a, a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps would have been able to plan this better than the way it went down. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrible to see. And no, then I mean, no offense to Lance Corporals in the Marine Corps right. at this time. Because um, you guys are squared away and you would have done a better job, 100%. <clears throat> Fast forward a little bit more. The bombing's aftermath created more challenges for us with a week remaining until the United States' self-imposed deadline. Two more gates were welded shut, further restricting entry points. We also received word from inside the airport that military leadership had started pulling back troops from security responsibilities, which was one way we were able to bring people inside. The new challenges meant a mix of overt and covert operations was no longer an option for us at HKIA. The additional security threat forced us to work covertly and avoid all major gates. For whatever motivation the State Department had, I think it figured out that the only way to shut down NGO evacuations was to allow the lily pad countries to max out on refugees they could handle the vetting processes to move refugees out of those countries came to a virtual halt. Our last flight of evacuees left three days before the deadline. For that time, the rescues were over. 
Tim, Sean, Sea Spray, and Dave returned to Abu Dhabi, and we reunited to share a meal, holding a debrief, hold the debrief, and address what was next for us. I had badly wanted to fly back into Afghanistan one more time, even if just to help load evacuees onto one more plane. I had wanted to put my feet on Afghanistan dirt one more time. But over 10 days, when the dust settled, we had rescued more than 12,000 people out of Afghanistan with, the best I can estimate, over 50 recovery operations. Only the Department of Defense evacuated more people. And we saved disease. So, yeah. Um, so when, when that when that piece happened, we knew like the military had to leave, but we we, we kind of remember us talking. And we we're like, well, we don't have to. You know, the uh, we knew the everybody that moved to Mazar Sharif. Also, the White House was saying there's 100 Americans left, which. You know, that state secretary Blanken had said there were 16,000 and then he said they moved out 6,000, but now there's a hundred and I'm not that great at math, but, but I'm better than that. Right. And, uh, and, but it, you know, we knew for a fact that there were thousands of Americans still there. And, uh, and the, but the truth is, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a hundred or a thousand, like you don't leave one American behind. That was even a promise that president Biden had said himself, you know, and we're, you know, we're, we're, from where we came from, you, you know, you scorched earth to go get an American. Like that's just what we do. Even in some idiot, like Bo Birdall, a traitor, like they knew they were gonna lose people to go get him, but he was an American. They were going to go get him. And so we chose to stay. And, uh, because of that. And, um, you know, we worked a coalition in Maza Sharif and got another, we got another 5,000 people out through that. And then when that was over, um, after two months of that, basically all the, the ability to be able to fly people out, like you said, the state department pretty much closed those doors. Yeah. So we knew there still had to be something we could do. Um, everyone had moved to the Panjir Valley and Ahmad Massoud, if anybody's followed the, Af- the history of the uh, Afghanistan 9-11, Ahmad Massoud was the leader of the Northern Alliance and bin Laden brilliantly assassinated him the day before 9-11 because he knew he would be our ally. So they cut off our allies before he did not did execute 9-11, which was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty smart strategy. And then as well, there was kind of this race, uh, that, that, that movie 12 strong, that was as a race to get control of, uh, of the ally force, like build ally forces, um, against the Taliban taking them because of the assassination of Ahmad Massoud. Well, his son, uh, his son started a, the resistance in Pan, the Panjir Valley. So all the commandos that we trained moved women and children to the Panjir Valley, and they were, they we had heard they were planning to cross them into Tajikistan for for refuge. And so when I heard this, I'm like, this is what we could do because I knew I've been in the area plenty of times before. The mountains there are like 25,000 foot peaks. There, uh, the even if you make it to the border, there's like a, hot th- a lot of places like a thousand foot cliff off the border because uh, the the border of Tajikistan and in Afghanistan is the, the Panjir River. So there's like a lot of cliffs there. And in addition to that, the Panjir River is category five rapids. It's ice melt water. If it stops anywhere, it's freezing, even in the summertime. So it's like this really treacherous terrain. In addition to that, the Taliban was protecting that border. The Tajik uh, border guard was protecting there. The Russian military moved in and had like mechanized convoys up to like 45 BMPs on the border to keep people from going into Tajikistan. And then the Chinese military had deployed their like Chinese infantry that special operations units to make sure that no one crossed. So they were going, they were going to try to move women and children through all that with no kind of visual another of, of how to do it. And so that's kind of bread and butter for, you know, for Shrikan guys. 
and I'm like, we need to go across and do route recons and do some fording reps and provide that information. We had some contacts in our government agencies, government intelligence agencies that couldn't collect that information, but they wanted it. And so, uh, so we decided to launch a two-man operation, and uh, and that's what uh, another miracle happened. I, I called. Uh, there was a Marine named Sta- Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, and he is a uh, he had just came from JSOC, four Street Gun Team Leader Year, Scout Sniper, younger than me, so he carry my stuff. <laughs> like like uh, you know, he's just like a really good dude, and he really wants to participate. And so, but he the problem was he was in the reserves, and you wasn't, they wasn't allowed to participate in anything like this. So I called his commander, Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Waller, who I knew. I said, hey, you got this Marine there, Staff Sergeant Price. What are the chances you could cut him loose to allow me to come on this humanitarian mission? That's what I called it. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, well, I put it in writing. I don't know. And so we put it in writing, and another miracle, he got approved. And uh, he, he got cut loose to come with me. And uh, so he and I went and, and did this you know, operation, spent 10 days. We traveled, you know, we landed, did 12 hours drive through the mountains, spent yeah, 10 no, days on it, that border. No, it's, uh, again, I, all this is in the book. Um, you know, you, 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 you have updates in there from Afghanistan that you talk about, which are very powerful to read. Like well, the one that I remember was, uh, you know, like 11 year old girl that's being forced to marry a 55 year old man. This is what's now they're, they're suffering under there. And then like, you, you know, you go into the details around this, this, you know, uh, this Tajikistan mission where you got like Nikita, this tour guide, <laughs> like it's wild uh, border security encounters. Um, you got all that stuff, the assessments that you guys do. So there's a whole nother story. Like, the, the, you know, I stopped when, when, when you saved disease, but that's not the end of the book. Um, you got discussions about the meaning of the war in Afghanistan. You got Aziz back in America with his family. So there's so much more that I covered now or that we covered today. Um, but you know, you close the book by explaining that there's still 40 million people in Afghanistan living under this oppressive, tyrannical regime, the Taliban. And then what you say is that despite the people that we were able to get out, because there's millions of these people still there, what you say in the book, you, you say, we cannot claim victory. There is no victory in all of this. There's only doing the best we can as the mission continues. And that's for sure. I mean, the reason I want to bring that up is not only is it true in this situation, but it's it's true in so many situations that we all face in life, Yeah, which is you face dire situations, you face incredible odds, and sometimes the best you can do is the best you can do. You're yeah. never gonna be able to raise your hand in victory and say I'm the champ, but the best you can do is the best you can do. It applies to war, applies to health, it implies to business, it applies to life. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a, a really pertinent part of the book to, to bring up because it's not just about this, it's about everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, yeah, a lot of people have given us a lot of credit, you know, 17,000 people out, that sounds like a lot, but that's a speck of sand on the beach compared to the 40 million there. The 20 million, million women and little girls are sexually enslaved the rest of their life. They don't even have women's rights, they don't have human rights now because of this. And so, like 17,000 sounds like a lot, but to me it's like, man, what if we could have done more? Uh, you know, and I, I, I vividly remember like pulling, as we're in that operation center, like we're doing, we're planning operations, pulling white papers off of the board that are like this white paper we're pulling off and throwing away because that mission 
didn't happen because we couldn't get another we couldn't get our guys another another 500 yards closer to these people and now it's 300 kids that we're just tossing that and moving it on like there was so much more we could have done and, and i mean in the river operations you know dennis and i are swimming across that river every night into afghanistan and uh and then there was one night where we were trying to rescue this family this pregnant woman and their, and a commando and their their kids and it's like that didn't happen there was so many like parts of that book the book that i wrote about in the book and plenty of that aren't in the book that were just like not victories yeah. but it was just the best we could we were just trying to do the best we could and and uh, we keep we keep getting asked a lot. Like we've done a lot of media stuff, and me and Seaspray were on an interview recently, and this lady was asking us like why you know why we do it. I mean, obviously why we get diseases. You know, that's I think most people could conclude why we go get diseases. But why do we stay? Why are we in Ukraine right now helping in Ukraine? You know, we don't know these people, and you know I think the simple answer is because it's the right thing to do, and there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Uh, if you can help someone, if you have the ability to help someone, and you you should. But Seaspray was asked another question, and it kind of took me back when he was asked. Luckily, it asked him because he answered it perfectly. She, that lady said, was it worth it? And he said, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't always have to be worth it to do the right thing. And I think oftentimes in our life, we look at everything like with the ROI, like I'll invest my time, my energy, my money, my resources. What am I getting out of it? What's the risk? You know, what's the risk analysis? You know, it, it doesn't always have to be worth it to do the right thing. We think a risk me and Tim specifically were getting insulted a lot like on social media. I tried not to read a lot of stuff, but people were like, you got like basically like ch champ, like hoping for us to die so we learn our lesson because we shouldn't have been out there getting in the way of the military. First of all, like for us, if anybody think we got in the way of the military, like who is stupid enough to believe that we had a bunch of veterans have the ability to land on a DOD control and do that on our own, like cowboy thing. It's, that's impossible, right? We, we clearly had coordination. And secondly, like, you don't think we know the risk. We all been around a long time. We knew exactly the risk uh, we were taking. I, I mean, I mean, I remember like me and Dennis flying over to to Tajikistan. Like we're about to swim across this river in Afghanistan. Like my wife, at, when we were on the way to the airport, she's like, "Why are you doing this?" Like, and, and I mean, she was, you know, she was worried, obviously scared, and she's like, "Why are you doing this?" And I'm like, "What if it was us? What if this was our daughter that was going to be sexually enslaved the rest of her life? What was it? Our sons that would be put in this position? We'd be praying someone would come help us." And, uh, you know, I, I know I would. And uh, so, you know, sometimes I think in life, outside of combat, outside of stuff like this, Afghan, just everyday life, this, you know, we have the right, the opportunity to do the right thing we should. And, you know, I think really this was a lesson that I learned in that. And it doesn't always have to be worth it. The ROI didn't have to always be there. We measure that a lot, you know, what, what we do. But sometimes, you know, like Seaspur said, it doesn't have to be worth it to do the right thing. Yeah, well, I would say that the ROI on doing the right thing is the most valuable thing that yeah. there is. I it's mean, just, just that compared right. to having a look at yourself in the mirror when you know you didn't do the right thing. That's mm -hmm. to me that the ROI on doing the right thing is the most valuable possible ROI there is. That's true. Um, you might not be able to measure it out in, you know, some kind of monetary value or whatever. Right. But I mean, if, if, if everyone was just driven by what their ROI was in terms of material things, I mean, life would be totally different and it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about like, okay, what do you got going on right now? What's so save our allies that's up and running. How's that going? Is that what's in, is that who you're in Ukraine with right now? No. So, um, so you know, mighty Oaks foundation, my foundation, we stood up, save our allies as the effort for Afghanistan. Um, I, I was, when, when I was over, we, uh, I stepped off of the, the board with save our allies. Cause I'm, I, I'm too, focused on mighty oaks I have to be uh so it's still up and running sarah nick 
uh, Tim still still doing Save Our Allies, and that's save uh, saveourallies.org. Yeah, dot that's org. where they're dot at. Org. Okay, yeah. and so for me, Mighty Oaks is is a uh, is and we have an international vision. We're in Ukraine uh, doing um, what we call a medical mission. Uh, so we go out and bring the troops like IFACs and go. We'll teach them like T Triple C, combat ca- combat casualty care. And, uh, and use that as a rapport builder with them to be able to be there for them uh, in a mental, spiritual program side that Mighty Oaks does. And so we, we take our Mighty Oaks instructors, U.S. combat veterans who have been trained to do Mighty Oaks and push them forward in small teams to do that. We've also been involved in a lot of uh, rescue operations, some with Save Our Allies and and, and, uh, and then others without. Uh, we've just um, rescued Benjamin Hall. If you remember the Fox News reporter, it was catastrophic. We did it was my, myself, C-Spray, and a couple other guys. Uh, went and, and took it, uh, Benjamin Hall out. Then the following days uh, after that, we went back and uh, I actually drove the Hearst out to get uh, Pierre, the 25-year cameraman, um, out of, out of uh, Kiev when it was under attack and mm-hmm. went out to the front lines, Kharkiv, all those areas, Izum. Um, when been, we, we, I've been like two hours past the Russian line uh, doing some of the programs we've been doing. So we've been we've been out there doing some pretty incredible work in Ukraine. When's the last time you were out there? Uh, two months, two and a half months ago. How was the morale for the Ukrainian troops? Man, you know it's pretty crazy because uh, they're they are like so optimistically motivated, and uh, they're they feel like they're in such a righteous position to defend their homes. Hey, you got to take the politics out of it because everything we see here in America is like Zelensky and and billions of dollars and all that's corruption and stuff like that. I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about helping people. And the, most of these the troops in Ukraine, they're not tied to the Ukrainian government. They're there like to protect yeah, their homes their and their families and yeah and their wives and kids. So when you look at it from that perspective, these people are like they're righteously feel like they're defending their their way of life. And, What's um, the have we able to get a feel for the morale of the Russian troops? Uh, the only Russian troops I've seen firsthand and, uh, and I was dead or dying. We were in a zoom, we were in a zoom, uh, uh, and they pushed the zoom had been taken for six months. So they, the Ukrainian unit that we were with pushed forward is myself and C spray, just two of us. And, uh, we, we were with them when they pushed forward and the Russian line collapsed behind us. Uh, so we, I, that's the first time I ever seen air over us. Like I, they were like two, like, and they're like, were those MIGs? And I was like, I never seen that before. And Sea Spray's like, yeah, me neither. And uh, and they came back and did a gun run in front of us. Uh, and then uh, they were IDF hitting like within like, hundred yards of us. We were stuck there. But as they pushed forward, I probably counted like sixty Russian troops that were dead or dying. So how'd you get and, it uh, out of the envelopment? Well, which once it settled, we were able to move out. We were you know single vehicle. We were just us in a single vehicle, so we just had to wait for it to to calm down. We stayed with the, the main unit as they moved forward. We were with uh, we had the we were with us was the uh, the chief of all the Ukrainian police, so uh, so he had his detail with him. That's who we were with. But uh, I had to wait till I mean because the, like I said, the line closed behind us, and there was pr- there was pri- probably the most kinetic fighting I've ever seen. Um, you know, I'm, you know, especially considering the type of work I did in Afghanistan, I never seen that level of kinetic fighting firsthand before. But you know. I mean, like we were walking by, like, and they were like a, a Russian kid, like probably 17 years old, dying, and they still had his AK-47 on him, and I took it from him and and cleared cleared it because their Ukrainian troops are already passing. Mm-hmm. I didn't pick it up, you know. I'm trying not to be a combatant there, but but like that close to kinetic combat, I'd never seen anything like 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 I can show you some videos on my phone, like like it was crazy. I mean, and this is uniform on uniform. You yeah. know, we haven't seen much of that before, um, and so uh, 
obviously we're not there trying to get involved in those kind of environments but the nature of the work that we're doing puts us in those places sometimes we just uh i don't want to say the name but um but we just moved out of, we, we were we had a seal that was fighting there and uh he was he was wounded we were moving him we went into we were called to go in and get him we went in and went in to get him and uh and then this we went is to hospital. just just this is not an active duty seal no yeah no. just to make that clear yeah, yeah sorry yeah, yeah. he's uh joined the uh ukrainian legion and uh, to fight there, and, and he, uh, but he was wounded. We were in, and we stopped at a hospital, and uh, he was, he was being treated at the hospital. And the State Department gave some problems at moving him, and so he, he would, we, we tried to get him to Poland for help, but he ended up passing, and uh, we got his body out. So we're doing things like that as well, and so we were able to get his body home to where his family was, and so he could have a proper burial and, and be back with his mom. So, yeah, so. the. Um Outlook for the war in the Ukraine in Ukraine um, You know, it's a test of wills and as you mentioned It's very difficult to break the will of people who are defending their home and their families That's right and their soil so You know the, you, you don't know who's gonna and I, I'm, I'm surprised. Well, I guess I'm not surprised We don't learn this lesson we meaning human beings don't learn this lesson right because we think we can go to some other country and by we again it could be anybody could be anybody could be america like we did in vietnam like we did in afghanistan like like the russians did in afghanistan like we like big giant countries have done all over the world go in and think we can beat someone because they're small and because uh we're bigger and we have better technology and the fact of the matter is you're going to come up against people that are willing to die for their cause. And this is what happened in Vietnam. You yep. know, we, we looked at them and said, oh, we can kill. After the Battle of the Idrang Valley, we said, oh, we killed 150 of them for every one of us. We can win. And what we didn't realize is they didn't care if they lost a million, which they did, two million. We lost 58,000 and we lost because our will was not in that fight. Yeah, and I think that's what what you were at, getting to with the Russian. What's their their motivation? I mean, most of them don't even realize they're conscripts. They don't even realize why they're there. Some of them think they're going to eradicate neo Nazism from Ukraine. Some of them think they're going there for a training exercise, and so they don't even. I, I went into I was in a went to a jail cell with about ten of them, and they were just uh, they had just been recently captured, and they were just like, "What do you want to know?" Like we didn't want to be here, mm-hmm. and uh, but I was I was in this I was in a safe house with uh with this ukrainian pastor we were uh, we were when we first went there one of the things we did we set up a communicate uh, kind of clandestine communication infrastructure for some of our assets and and we were sitting there just talking and and, uh, and i was like asked him the same question what do you think is going to happen and he said uh we're going to win and he was just said it with such confidence i'm like and he's like they would they will have to kill every single ukrainian yeah. to take this country and he it's, was it, it ends up i mean right now it's like you said it's uniform on uniform mm-hmm. but if Ukraine uniform forces, let's say they lose, which is by no means going to happen, but even if they did, they're gonna have to fight against an insurgency that's gonna be there, that's gonna, you, you, which is gonna be very difficult to defeat. Yeah, we drive, we drive like, we usually move at night, and, uh, and we have the, usually both the roads are closed, but we have the ability, we have permission to drive at night, but sometimes you run into, like we have permission to drive at night, but it's, if you're hitting official military checkpoints, but like I'm driving through, we do, we do like 18 hour drives, like like across the across Ukraine, and we're driving, and then there's like another checkpoint, just a militia, and uh, you know they're not connected to the military; they're protecting their homes and towns, like 
like you're saying and, and i mean that's a scary that's one of the most dangerous moments for us because they think we're they're, they're told that gay russians will come through here they'll have blue american passports and they'll say they're ngos and they're going to kill you so now we're in the middle of the <laughs> back country by some country boy with a by a, on a 55 gallon drum next to a fire and he's got his he's got his hunting rifle and a machete and they got us you know there's a, the whole crew around us and they pulling everything out of car and think they, they think we're going to kill them so they're scared which makes it a very dangerous environment but i mean these these people are just they're just wanting to protect their homes mm-hmm. <sighs> all right man um does that get us up to date kind of yeah i mean uh, you know obviously mighty oaks uh always and though especially with your platform if any veterans out there first responders active duty service members spouses that need help like no you're you're not alone you don't have to do it alone you weren't meant to do it alone like uh, so many amazing organizations out there mighty oaks is one of them everything we do is free we'll fly you out we have an amazing program if you're where are they located because it used to be in california is there still one in california, there's one in california central california we have twenty-five thousand acre ranch up in paso rebels area uh, we have two in texas virginia ohio um and so uh it, but how many how many programs are you running a year there we'll do 35 uh camps this year and uh how many people in a camp uh, all the locations are different, but average of 40 people, but 20 first time students who go mm-hmm. through because we, we have guys coming back through that leadership development because we training guys to be part of it. So uh, be 40 beds, but about 20 first time um, people coming through. And if, if the faith based thing is like a turnoff for people, like I can tell you that half the people that come to our programs not no, that share our Christian faith, but they come and, you know, take what you could take from it. It's a, it's a, you know, we're not, it's not an evangelical like pushing jesus down your throat program it's like hey we use the we use our, our faith-based side is like biblical living so we kind of like contrast making good decisions based off these biblical principles but you know don't let that turn you off and uh and keep you from getting help we have we have an amazing group of people it's all peer-based uh there's no counselors there not that anything against clinical counselors but that's just not what we do it's peer-to-peer mentoring and, and uh, people that have been through the same things that you may be struggling with and could help you move forward. What's uh, this is mightyoaksprograms.org is the website. What's uh, what's the course look like? How long am I going there for? If I'm if I yeah. if I reach out, first of all, how to reach out? Go to the website. Yep, go to the website. Uh, applications on there. Super simple application. We made it make it that way because we'll get more information later. But uh, we want to be easy application process. Someone from our team will contact you back. Uh, within like within a few days, three or four days, and then we could uh, we have the 35 camps uh, this year, so we'll schedule you a location and, and date that works for you. And uh, by, by the way, we don't care about your discharge. If people, you know, sometimes people, I know I know guys are you know Navy Cross recipients that got a bad conduct discharge to DUI, right? That doesn't mean we don't help them. So like it doesn't matter. We don't care about any of that stuff. And uh, so you you go you'll come. It's five days long. You'll spend five days on our ranch. Uh, uh, well, five nights, so six, five nights, six days, and you usually get there Sunday night and leave leave Saturday morning, and uh, and you're gonna be put in a six man team. There'll be a better, a, you don't have to be a combat veteran to go, but all of our team leaders are combat veterans, and uh, so a, a combat veteran who's been through our program, trained by us, will lead that team, and you'll go through fourteen uh, fourteen like core principle courses. And at the end of each class, like their classes are in different kind of life like life principles that you would uh, and and we go you break out in that six-man team and you just kind of work through that together what's it look like in your life what's some how that challenge you in your life what's some better decisions you can make and we help people make a plan uh to be able to navigate the hardships and difficulties of life and make better decisions and then part of that plan is using our after aftercare system to have someone to stay connected to and have support all the way through so when i leave i'm still connected 
That's and if right. I have, if yeah. I need help, I got a buddy that we linked up with, maybe somebody that's further along in the program, that type of thing. That's right. Yeah. That's what, as our aftercare program, I think it's one of the most important things that we do. And it's one of the areas I think a lot of organizations and, and programs fail at. They have this, you bring people to this program, you have this kind of mountaintop high and you go back and life hits you right back in the face, you know, and, uh, and you don't have the resources. So one of the things I thought early on, you know, that, that made me successfully in the successes I've had personally was the having that support network moving forward. So I knew that if we have a program like this, we have to have it integrated. We should not, we should not outgrow our ability to have that system uh, of aftercare. And so if we can't have that system of aftercare, we need to, and we need to grow it. Our organization have always made sure it grew at the pace that we were able to maintain that system of aftercare. So now people have to choose to be part of it. You know, obviously like anything else, people could sign up for jujitsu and choose not to come. Uh, but uh, which is happen, happens a lot in probably big big part of your revenue stream here to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, you know, people sign up for things and don't stick to it. But, but you know, but even even so, you know, I, I joke I joke about that. But the truth is, like, sometimes people leave the program and they don't stay connected, and they you think they fell off, and then they'll struggle again. They'll come back. They know what to come back to, and mm-hmm. and having that lifeline, knowing where it's at, is uh, is important as well. And so you do both that program and the stuff that you're doing overseas, for instance, in the Ukraine right now. Is that are those all under the same uh, nonprofit? Yeah. So Mighty Oaks Foundation has four four areas. We do our resiliency program. That's usually me or Jeremy Stolnecker going to bases around the world and, and speaking uh, on resiliency to the troops. So like I go to Marine Corps boot camp. I do pre-deployment briefs. I uh, I've done NSW pre, uh, resiliency programs. I've done a lot of lot with Army SF. So we do those. I've, I've spoken about a half million troops in the last 12 years doing that, really in about the past six years. And then in that, we give, we've written a lot of resources. So I could send you some of them. We have these little books that are about 40, 45 minute reads. We have one on PTSD. We have one on, uh, on spiritual resiliency. Uh, you know, those four pillars of resiliency, mind, body, social, spirit, the spiritual pillar. And then we have one on suicide. So we have these resources. We've given away about 350,000 copies of our books doing that. And then our recovery program is a legacy program. That's the camps we're talking about. And then the third thing we do is a public policy. Uh, I'll, I'll go. I've spent a lot of time in D.C. like testifying before Congress and Senate, working with the the VA to get faith based programs. Uh, make sure that veterans, whether people agree that with faith based programs or not, I think we could all agree that veterans should have the freedom to choose that if they want it. So we're really fighting for that in D.C. And then the fourth thing we do is our international. And so we take those same programs that we do successfully in the states and bring them to our ally partners around the world. So Ukraine's a little bit different because it's an active war right now, but we were in Ukraine before this. We, we had done three trips there helping them recover from 2014. We, we Peru, uh, um, different other ally countries around the world, we take those programs and we kind of like a train to trainer model. Like, hey, we're gonna take my, this is what we do in the States for Mighty Oaks uh, for our US service members. Let us uh, do one, we'll go over there and do a resiliency program and then they can identify uh, some staff members and we'll train them how to do what we do and hand it off. So that's what, that's our international effort, what is typically, what typically is. Like I said, Ukraine's a little bit different right now. Yeah, no, it's so. freaking awesome work. And like I said, I've I've seen what you've done uh, with guys. So I really appreciate what you're doing there. Saveourallies.org. You also got Shad Chad Robichaud.com. That's where if people want to, if you want, if you're looking for Chad, you want him to come speak. Uh, you know, that's where you reach out. Um, obviously, you got your books on there as well. What else? Yeah. What else is on that? I mean, say the other thing is mightyoakprograms.org. You know, those those three locations. And uh, and my, yeah, my books, speaking. I do a lot of speaking. I'm primary one of the ways that we raise money to do 
you know, get, well, you know, when I go out and speak, I'm, I'm doing two things. I'm one, raising money to be able to pay for these programs to make them free uh, for people. And then, uh, cause we, we do about half, you know, about 500, I mean, $5 million a year in programming. And then uh, other, the other side is I go speak and it helps me broadcast just like right now I'm getting to broadcast what we do. So people that need help could find help. You know, when I go, I speak at a lot of churches on the weekends and do a lot of corporate events and those corporate events, they have a lot of veteran employees there. And we always get applications after I speak, when I go to church on a Sunday and speak, we'll get swarmed with applications because uh, people in the community are struggling. And so it's bringing them a resource. So that's through uh, uh You're on social media. Yep, Instagram is both most active. And so. Most active on Instagram. That Your Instagram is Chad Robo, R-O-B-O, underscore official. Uh, you are also on Twitter, just Chad Robo. And you're on Facebook, Chad Robo Show. C-H-A-U-X, for those of you that aren't from Louisiana. <laughs> uh, and you got a YouTube channel too, Chad Robo 6351. What's 6351? Uh, I don't know. Is that was me? That one's. Yeah, I looked at it. There's videos of you out there. Oh man, I gotta check that out. <laughs> All right, well, we might wanna, might wanna blow that one up. Yeah. Um, awesome. Six three five one. Six three five one. I don't know. I figured it was some MOS or something. No. I don't know. Just huh. random numbers. All right. Well, we'll figure it out. You're not born in 1963. I don't know. Six three five one. Uh, does that get us up to speed? Yeah. We're yeah, pretty it does. much there. Yeah, man. I appreciate probably, that. Probably a good place yeah. to wrap up. Hey, Echo yeah. Charles. Questions from Echo. Really? No no jujitsu questions. No fighting questions. I mean, we're still doing jujitsu, right? Yeah. Of course. Well, there you go. Yeah, all good. Uh, Really impactful story, though. Yeah. I thought, yeah, anytime when, like, you kind of fall out with, you know, members of of your family and then you can reflect back of, you know, with with the stuff that you did or didn't do and you can come back together, I think there's always, like, some kind of lesson in there. And even on, like, sometimes you go deep, like, you know, like, yours was, like, detrimental yours was like near the end kind of a thing yeah. like it doesn't even have to get there to learn these lessons you know like you can, no. can just be the smallest little thing and be like hey wait a second i learned from you know that story or whatever kind of implement that way of looking at it and boom bring it back and and get everything together you, I think there's always something to learn with that you know what i was stuff. thinking of when you when you were talking about your wife like after you guys split up and you were like not being a good husband at all and then you guys are trying to get back together yeah. and then sometimes she's like Hey, you know what? You come home and she's like, "I don't want you." You know, you discuss me yeah. all that stuff, and you uh, you're going to your friend that's kind of mentoring you. And I, what I was thinking, I was like, if I was mentoring, I'd be like, "Hey, bro, this is a test." Yeah, like this is you you you. This is a test that you have to go. You know, we talk about gamifying things and how you turn something into a game. If your game is like, okay, I'm getting oh, this is a test I'm getting hit with right now because yep. my wife, who I was an idiot to, yep. is now testing me out. And testing out my faith and testing out my temper and testing out my ego. And am I gonna pass this test or not? That's yeah. the question. I remember like literally pulling in the driveway and be like, like I like I always talk about making a pre decision. Uh, like you decide in advance, you don't decide in a moment of chaos. Right. And so I make it I, I thought about that and I'd like pull in the driveway and I'd be like, Okay, I don't know what I'm walking into. A woman that wants me in the house and loves me or a woman that's gonna like be crazy and try to stab me with a kitchen knife. I don't know what I'm walking into, but whoever's gonna be in that house, I'm gonna have that compassion and grace and, and, and uh, making that pre-decision in advance. Yeah, I actually talk about that when I'm, t- when I'm working with leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I say, hey, before, you know, look, it's hard to detach. It's hard to not let your ego get involved. So before you go into a, a meeting with your boss that you know has a bad temper or a meeting with your employee that you know has a big ego, before you go in there, yep. 
decide how you're gonna act before you get in there. Say, okay, these are the things I'm gonna work on. I'm not gonna let my ego, I'm not gonna get emotional. I'm not gonna speak when I shouldn't be speaking. I'm gonna listen, like whatever those things are that you're gonna do, make that decision before you get into the scenario. Right. You're gonna have a much better chance of success. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good plan. You park your car outside the house, it's immediate action drill, right? Yeah. You don't decide that you don't decide in that moment of chaos. You don't decide like, hey, you call a combat timeout, rally up, figure out what to do. You know exactly what you could do because yeah. you thought about it in advance. You practice it, you rehearsed it a thousand times. Yeah. When my parachute fails, I'm not I'm not having to think about what I'm gonna do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know what I'm gonna do. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. <laughs> Uh, awesome, Chad. You got any cl- any closing thoughts, man? No, man. I'm just I'm super grateful for you having me on. Uh, it's been you know something I've looked forward to for a very long time, and uh, thankful you had me on. You got an awesome show. <laughs> you doing you crushing it, man. You're doing inspiring people, doing great things. It's an honor to be on with you. Well, thanks, and I'm, I'm sorry it took so long to get you down here, and I'm sorry you got a, a bad teeth or whatever you said. You, get, you, know, you can't train right now. All I, got, good. I got good uh, teeth now. Yeah. I just want to keep them. Now, I want to keep them. We were keep them good. Um, really appreciate you coming down. Thanks for thanks for sharing your lessons learned. Thanks for your service. You know, obviously in the Marine Corps, you know what you did as a, in the Marine Corps, what you did as a contractor, but really, especially for everything that you did for our allies in Afghanistan and for what you continue to do today for our allies overseas and especially what you're doing for our veterans here at home. Thanks for everything, brother. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Right on. And with that, Chad Robichaud has left the building. A lot going on there, Echo Charles. Yeah. A lot of ups and downs. Yep. A lot of losing oneself and finding oneself. Yeah, fully. So uh, a lot of it coming back to jiu-jitsu. You know what's interesting? You know, no one knows what happens when we, when, when, when someone leaves the building. Yeah. But we actually just went out and reviewed some jiu-jitsu moves. A little lesson. Still yeah. in the game, you know. Yeah. Chad's really. still in the game, still training, still yeah. getting after it. Teaches sometimes when he can. And what a good grounding, right? Mm. You know, it's a good thing to come back to the yeah. jiu-jitsu. Yeah. It's weird, like one of the many things that dawned on me yet again with like the story, like, okay, yeah, the the, the shooting incident, right? Mm. But the Afghanistan stuff, like he's going through it, right? Saying this is how everything like got laid out. I live in a bubble. I understand. Mm-hmm. And this stuff is like, this is really, really, really happening. It's not like, it's not just a novel. It's not a novel. Mm. It's not a movie or whatever. This is like really happening. Yeah, that always kind of kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, uh, and I try to point that out too. Like you're reading the book and you're hearing about people getting shot and people getting drugged through the streets. And you're kind of like, oh, well, that's you know, that's yeah. like, you know, you 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 might say, oh, well, that's like this movie that I saw. So you're taking a book and relating it to a movie. You know, yeah. the movie's not real. So basically, you're just distancing yourself from what's really happening. Right. And it is when you think about the fact that this stuff is happening that you know guys are going into harm's way mm-hmm. and what does that do what it's not you don't know what's going to happen man you do not know what's going to happen no so uh yeah man also to the um it's it's a it's an interesting because i don't know you know i watch tv sometimes and you know you see stuff on the news and like all this stuff and you have this this kind of picture laid out but he kind of 
it dawned on me that like sometimes when like things aren't being done the correct way, even though that's normally how they go, like, if, you know, where whether there's a lot of red tape or it's just some a big bureaucracy or whatever. But sometimes you can just freaking grab a friend, two friends, 10 friends, ask some people for some support on the tail end, on the front end and freaking just do it yourself. Yep. Man. I, I was going to go into this whole comparison. This is like free market opportunities know, right it yeah. was like the the big bureaucratic thing which is the military and the state department was all you know they got planners and they're doing yeah. all this stuff free market was like okay we need money we need people put them together who wants to rock and roll let's go do it exactly. and they went and did it yeah so yes uh sometimes you just got to get after it and that's what's going to work so yeah. while you're getting after it you need some fuel Get yourself some Jocko Fuel. Go to JockoFuel.com. Look, look, we got all kinds of good stuff. Drinking some, right now, drinking some Go energy drink. Mm-hmm. Hard to call it an energy drink when it's not really comparable to normal energy drinks that are poison and will give you diseases. Yeah. Over time, they're, they're absolutely horrible for you. Yeah. Factually. Sure. We got something that's good for you. So go there, JockoFuel.com. You can get, do you know what, Joint Warfare? Yeah. You can get curl oil, super cool. You can get milk. Ready to drink milk. Okay, so here's the thing about milk. Here's a new development mm-hmm. in my workflow, mm-hmm. my milk workflow. So you know how like sometimes, uh, was it Dakota Meyer said he froze, froze it? Milk yeah, mud or yeah. Okay, he cool. makes the milk good, mud. Good move. So here's the thing. Incidentally, this is what I found. So the RTD milk, you don't freeze it, but you get it really, really, really cold, mm-hmm. like right below freezing. Then drink it <laughs> for real, <laughs> and you'd think like, okay, it's just cold or whatever, but it adds another like um, layer of something, whether it be flavor, texture, whatever. Like how cold it is, it's li- it's like you know how you're, you guys are saying like, oh yeah, the vanilla one tastes like melted ice cream. Mm-hmm. It is. It's like actual ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like. You know, you have this impression, you know, when you drink stuff like water, you drink under certain circumstances is going to be more appealing than mm. like juice or soda or milk or milkshake or ice, you know, all this stuff. When you drink the, fro- the, the what do you call, just below frozen one, mm-hmm. it's like it takes you to a different context. <laughs> milk. Bro, I'm telling you, try. try I'm going to try, try it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try it. Uh, JockoFuel.com. Go check that out. You can also get it at Wawa. You can get it at Vitamin Shop, Military Commerce. A bunch of friends sending me stuff from Military Commerce. pictures of it. They're like, yo, you got it in here. So yep. Hannaford, Dash Stores, HEBs. Yep. H-E-B, sorry, H-E-B. Down in, well, I guess it's HEBs, plural. Down in Tejas, Meyer, out in the Midwest. Uh, Weiss. Just rolled into Weiss, so a bunch of places. Um, if you if your if your store doesn't have it, ask for it. Jocko Fuel. Uh, there you go. Also, Origin USA. If you need a pair of jeans, which you do. If you need a pair of boots. If you need a pair of shorts. If you need a a belt. If you need a wallet. If you need a beanie. If you need a sweatshirt. You need a hoodie. Hey, whatever you need. If you need hunt gear. Whatever you need, we got it for you. Mm. We got it for you, and it's made in America. We got factories where we're taking American raw material and turning it into American clothing. Go to originusa.com and get yourself something that is made in America that you can wear and not feel overriding guilt because you haven't enslaved poor third world nationals that are living in a sweatshop being worked to death. Don't do that. Let your conscience be clear. 
OriginUSA.com. Let your conscience be clear. It's true. Also, we're representing, right? Discipline equals freedom. Good. If you want to represent, go to JockoStore.com. That's where you can get your shirts and hats and hoodies. That kind of cool stuff. Some new stuff, I think, coming down the pipe. So be on the lookout for oh, that one. getting creative oh, over there. Something coming down the pipe. Just be on the lookout for that one. Also, the short locker, which is one shirt, new shirt every month, different mm-hmm. design every month. Yeah. Creative, I guess. If you want to okay. call it that, you can call it other. Anyway, a lot of people, uh, good, some good feedback on that one. Shirt locker. That's what it's called. It's on jockostore.com. So good on. Don't forget about subscribing to the podcast, jockounderground.com, YouTube. Subscribe to those. Psychological Warfare. Flipside Canvas, speaking of Dakota Meyer, Flipside Canvas, making cool stuff to hang on your wall. All the books, look, uh, Ch- Chad wrote Saving Aziz. Pick up that book. He also wrote a book called Unfair Advantage and a book called Fight for Us. Really good insights in these books. Check them out. Also, you got your Jocko books, Jocko publishing books, Only Cry for the Living. We also have the Warrior Kid books. Warrior Kid 5, Letters from Uncle Jake. It's out. I should tell more people that I did like an Instagram post the other day yeah. telling 13, 15, 17-year-old oh, yeah. young men what to do with their lives. And I, you know, some of the comments, I was reading the comments, yeah. like, oh, uh, you know, you're just saying this right now. I was like, bro, I wrote my first kid's book like seven years ago, which had the same concepts in it. Yeah. There's no bandwagging I'm jumping into. No. <laughs> We're here f- to turn kids into warrior kids. Get the warrior kid books, Mikey and the Dragons, uh, Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy Leadership, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Go get that book. Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com. Live events are coming up, they're selling out. We're kind of oversold some of them. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll be moving some furniture, yeah, squeezing people in, but mm. everything we do sells out. So if you want to come, go to echelonfront.com if you need help inside your company or organization with leadership. By the way, if you're having problems, then you have leadership problems. If you have problems with your supply chain, it's a leadership problem. If you have problems with your process that you have in place, it's a leadership problem. If you have people doing the wrong things, it's a leadership problem. All these problems are leadership problems. Go to echelonfront.com. We also have online training at the Extreme Ownership Academy, extremeownership.com. There's courses to take. You're not gonna be a great leader if you read one book or you sit through one seminar. You actually have to train just like going to the gym, extremeownership.com, check that out. And if you wanna help service members active and retired, you wanna help their families, you wanna help Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization, does incredible things for veterans and active duty actually sometimes. So if you wanna donate or get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also check out heroesandhorses.org. We just got a report from the field. Mm -hmm. It seems like at this time, Micah Fink is ice climbing (laughs) with a a mountain lion that he just killed Mm -hmm. after it attacked him, but he survived. And now he's ice climbing to the top of a peak to save a horse. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> hey, also, you got Save Our Allies at saveourallies.org. A great organization. You heard some of the work that they did today. They're continuing to do work around the world. Uh, support Mighty Oaks, the Mighty Oaks Programs.org. Sorry, Mighty Oaks Programs.org. Check that one out. Uh, just doing incredible stuff. Like I said, these are, these are organizations that have helped people that I know. 
So please help them in return. And if you want to connect with Chad, go to chadrobashow.com. Also, he's on social media, Chad Robo Show or Chad Robo. Chad Robo underscore official on his Instagram. And of course, Echo and I are on there as well. We're, we're, not, we're not there to draw you into the algorithm though. So be careful if you go in there. But if you want to find us, Echo's at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to Chad once again. Chad, thanks for everything you've done and everything that you are doing. We are certainly grateful for your sacrifice and your service. And thanks to all the men and women out there in uniform who take risks every day to protect our way of life. And also thanks to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. You also risk your lives for us. And we are thankful for that. And to everyone else out there, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be wins and there's going to be losses. And at certain points, you're going to come up against powerful forces or circumstances that can overwhelm you. And what do you do when that happens? Got a quick rule for you. Do your best. Simply do your best. And you do that by going out there and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.